to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this month, actually, this month marks a milestone. Adventure Rider Radio Raw, this episode marks eight years running. We produce it every month for eight years running now. So this is episode 96. It's called the Self-Reliant Motorcycle Traveler. Skills and tools, uh, or sorry, skills, tools, and gear that makes us self-reliant. All that and more coming up. But before we get going, I want to give a shout out to some people who have really helped Adventure Rider Radio and Rob this past month with support of $50 or more. Here we go. Gregory Deitz, Jason Hill, Andre Blum, Paul Braden, Robert Rogers, Peter Ardern, Barking Moon Farm, Mike McClure from Tom's Cycle and Power Products, and John Sirabasi from Emmaus Moto Tours. It's so great to have people appreciate what we're doing and help the show by supporting. Hey, if you're interested in supporting the show, we would love it if you would drop our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on support. Now, in case Raw is a new discovery for you, we do another show every week called Adventure Rider Radio. It's our flagship show. You can find it everywhere you find podcasts or visit our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now, here we go, Adventure Rider Radio Raw for January 2024. live from the Canoe S Media Studio, deep in the wild forests of North America, covered in snow. This is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined by all of my esteemed regular Overland co-hosts. I'm going to start way over in the UK with Sam Manicom. Hello, Sam. Uh, hi, Jim. Hi, everybody. Um... Listen, I hope that everybody's 2024 has kicked off really well and that everybody's already into new adventures or certainly planning for the, the coming summer. Um, I love this time of year. The days are getting longer and I'm getting closer and closer to summer fun on two wheels. And it's a, it's a nice feeling, isn't it? As Exeter tonight, well, we are a little bit cloudy and chilly, but nothing extreme. And we've, we've had um, getting on for a month of heavy rain now, so this is a bonus. I was down by the river um, a couple of days back and you could see where the river had been up a good six feet. Um, and that was by the debris in the top of the, top of the bushes and things like that. So there's been a lot of people that have been battling with the weather like this. But um, yeah, it's it's um, on the way down and those wonderful winter nights where you can see the stars and there's a nice bite in the air. So I'm smiling. Well, you certainly have a positive outlook, Sam. We've only been two days into days, or two weeks rather, into days getting longer. And you can already notice the days getting longer, even though it's only been by like six minutes or something. You get yeah. very excited about this stuff. Oh, I do. I do. No, and, and we, you really can notice it already, can't you? Yeah, I know. Yeah, you can for sure. We, we've commented on it actually here as well. And it's very exciting for us too. The 21st of December is always a time that I feel good about because it is the time when our days start getting longer. Yeah, roll on. Let's bring in Michelle, Michelle Lampfair, who has, I was going to say Michelle on the boat, but she's not on the boat anymore. <laughs> you're, I've, you're, you were on vacation so long, Michelle, that, that I, you know, it's, it's tough to get used to you not being on vacation anymore. That's how I feel. Michelle Lampfair, I don't know where you are. Where are you? <laughs> I'm in North Carolina. Hi, Jim. And hey, everybody. I haven't spoken to you guys since last year, so this is a treat. Ooh. Nice to catch up with you. <laughs> and you've just wrapped up your, your massive cruise that was... 300 and what days? I, I can't remember. <laughs> no, it just felt like that. It was, it was incredible. It was actually 73 days. I did a, I, I jokingly refer to it as a hot lap around Africa and then back to the U S and I've been <laughs> on dry land now for almost two weeks. 
Wow. So yeah. 73 days. Now, a, a lot of people would consider that kind of a long vacation. I mean, you know, some people would think that. You just referred to it a minute ago when we were talking as a mini vacation. Yeah. <laughs> wow. My standards are sort of skewed then, aren't they? <laughs> you live a tough yeah. life. <laughs> I must. Let's, let's bring in Grant Johnson in British Columbia. Hello, Grant. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. It's a new year. And like Sam says, the days are getting longer. And I can tell you that this is the, the 21st is the day when Susan absolutely gets really excited. Oh boy, finally, the days are getting longer because she gets really bummed about the short days and just hates that. Mm -hmm. But at least she doesn't have to drive to work in it. That's, so that's the good part. <clears throat> Last night we had a wonderful snowfall. Just as we were going to bed, there was snow on the ground. It was really pretty. Oh, oh dear, we're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be all kinds of snow. Wake up in the morning, not a speck of snow in sight, and it's howling wind out there. We've got a massive storm coming in, and it's been raining and wind and all the rest of it, which is a wow. real change because we had in December was the driest month in history in British Columbia. Wow. We were people were talking about drought for the summer and massive forest fire worries and just no water and water shortages. This is I've never heard that kind of talk in this part of the world before, ever in my life. And I, it's like we're we're in British Columbia. How can it possibly be dry? It's yeah, just, on the wet coast. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's just to. wrong. Yeah. But yeah, drought. So serious worry. So maybe this will be a change. Maybe we'll get that snowpack that we desperately need because all of our water in the summer comes from the snowpack. So we'll see. As we're talking right now, we're of course getting a massive snowfall where I am. We're expecting uh, 25 or 30 centimeters of snow, which is like, well, I think that translates to a, a foot or two of, of snow uh, if you're an imperial, but I'm exaggerating, obviously. But uh, I was going to say, I have the cure for, for all this cold weather we've been talking about, this cold and the rain and everything. Let's bring in Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks because they're sweating in Australia. Good morning. I know. It, it, good morning. It's going to be 30 degrees, glorious sunshine again today, but we have had a lot of rain. We were told this was going to be a dry summer. We had uh, 84 mil on Christmas Eve, another 40 odd on Christmas Day. And a couple of days ago, we had another 60 or 70 mil in one day. So it's just mm. uh, wet, 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 but hopefully that's finished for the time being. And we've got sun, sun, sun. Well, yeah, just mm. I'll just have to put my sunglasses on, guys. Sorry, but uh, yeah. the dawn's coming up, not a cloud in the sky, bikes are warming up in the <laughs> shed. So, yeah, I reckon it's going to be a beauty, a cracker of a day for us here. Um, a few I can, roads, I, few I can roads, see where it's getting shiny where I can see where it's getting shiny where you're rubbing it in, Brian. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, there's a few roads cut because of uh, all the weather we've had. And um, so I might go out exploring on the, the big GS and uh, uh, go and have a bit of a look around, I think. Mm, try yeah. not to end up on the news right. tonight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so you guys are first thing in the morning. You, you just get out of bed. You crawl over to your set here and then you're talking to us on Raw. But... In, in the time that you, between your bed and crawling over to this microphone, what did you do, Brian? What was the most important thing you did this morning? Uh, I, I, um, I laid out my bike gear on the bed, getting ready to go. As soon as this finishes, <laughs> I'm off. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, so that's the life for you right there. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Hey, I want to talk to Michelle more about, the, about this trip. 
this um, ridiculously long vacation that she's been on. And <laughs> so you've landed, you, you mentioned that you, you're, you've been on solid ground now for two weeks. What was it like getting off the boat? Did you, was that kind of weird? Um, I don't think getting off the ship felt that weird because I, I think we had something like 32 ports of call during the cruise or during the voyage. So I was on dry land for full days quite a bit. Um, but I would say driving a car for the first time after I got home felt a little weird. Mm. So yeah, those little things I'd even forgotten a couple of uh, four digit passwords and stuff. I'd been offline and hadn't been doing all of my regular chores. So yeah, took me a minute to kind of get my bearings and yeah. And is it, is it the same as a motorcycle trip? Like when you come back now, are you dreaming of, of going on your next cruise? <laughs> Um, I wouldn't say that. I, I had a fantastic time. It, it really was an incredible journey with a very good friend, met lots of great people, saw some incredible places, places I'd never been. I think we went to 26 or 27 countries. Um, but no, I, I don't think that I'm going to be selling bikes and buying a boat anytime soon. I think I'll stick with bikes. I, I like overland travel better. So what was there a, this is, may sound like a silly question. Was there a massive difference with your experience when you're traveling by ship? I'm not talking on the ship. Obviously there is from the boat or from the bike, right. but, but right. when you're going in and exploring places, is there a massive difference from when you're on your bike? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, it's just, I think a very different style of travel. So when we reached ports of call, you have the option of taking an excursion, which is a ship organized tour for a day. And those are very, um, I, 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 I don't know. They, I think they're structured differently. They do different activities than I would do. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, I would say, well, for example, in South Africa, I took a day tour out to Chapman's Peak Drive and the entire way in this small 12 passenger bus, it was breathtaking. And I was absolutely sick that I didn't have the chance to ride a motorcycle on that road. <laughs> oh and with so, a tour, your, yeah. your time is sort of their time. That's right. So mm. you're tied to a dozen other people or they had bigger excursions too with something like 30 people or 40 people. And, and those really aren't my favorite things. So in many cases, I would hop off, hop off the ship and go find my own thing to do, go wander in a city, um, go find some local museum or site or something that I wanted to visit. And so I, I would do that and that's easier for me to do. I'm comfortable hopping off a, a ship or off of an airplane in most cities or countries and kind of making my own way for the day and entertaining myself. So mm. I had a good time. It, it really was fantastic. And the trip was also inspirational for you as a rider, wasn't it? You, you got some uh, uh, new destinations, I guess, or at least um, things to dream about. Absolutely. And I would say that I, for me personally, I think Africa, you know, as I've considered it over the years, traveling solo is definitely intimidating to me, but I really gained a comfort level by visiting. And I'd been to Africa in a few spots, like I'd been to Tanzania and Kenya, Morocco, Egypt, different parts of the country, but connecting the dots and visiting some of the new places and spending a little more time in some of the countries in the Southern half of Africa, more so on this trip than I had before. I really find it interesting. And I think it's, it's moving up my wish list to uh, go ride in Africa quite a bit more than it had been before. Yeah. Very nice. 
Well, what we're talking about today really is what you weren't on that trip, the self-reliant traveler, because <laughs> right. you're, you're depending totally on the ship and, and all those things that are going on, which is great. There are times and places for everything. But uh, what we're talking about today is, is, of course, motorcycle travel. So the self-reliant traveler, skills, tools, and, and gear to sort of make us self-reliant. Now, I wanted to start off this by just sort of laying out the groundwork of what we're talking about here today. So being self-reliant in the context that we're about to discuss is kind of like having insurance. It's the ability to take care of yourself if things go awry, if there's a, a problem. There's nothing, of course, wrong with accepting help. And in the context of actually motorcycle travel, assistance often leads to friendship and, and discovery. And we all understand that. However, it raises the question of wisdom and responsibility to travel as a dependent. In other words, relying too much on others when you're going out and traveling. Being dependent means leaning on those around you, the strangers, the travel companions, the friends, maybe even people at home. And, and while they may offer help, which is entirely human, true assistance shines when unforeseen issues arise. In other words, despite the operator's preparation for potential challenges. So in my view, the purest form of help occurs when someone has taken all the necessary or at least a bunch of necessary precautions, preparation, yet still find themselves in a situation where they need help. Then when someone comes to help, you know, they're helping you for the unexpected, but you've already done, you sort of, I guess, you know, we often talk about due diligence. So sort of already done your due diligence in advance. You did your best to prepare. Things didn't work out and now you need help. Now, there's nothing obviously inherently wrong with accepting help from other people. It's a, a human instinct, of course, to help one another. But when you go out unprepared and you didn't do any of that pre-trip planning, you didn't do any of that due diligence and then expect help, those are two different things. Now, the thought process is, what I'm coming to here, is that the, the idea of responsible travel being independent is that you're taking care of yourself and not relying too much on other people. Because when you rely on other people, you're kind of leaning on sort of local resources when you're doing this. So, so when you're leaning on those resources, when all the people are going leaning on these on those resources, that's obviously a toll. And and I don't, I'm not saying that people don't want to help you because they will. It's human nature. Thoughts? Um, Am I laying this out right? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think I think you are, Jim. I, I, look. Uh, I don't think you can be completely. You can be completely self reliant on a on a trip like um, a big long motorcycle trip. Yeah, you can prepare. You can do all those things that uh, you can uh, get yourself ready to go on the trip, and you should be ready to go on the trip and have your mindset right and your skills at a certain level, so you can do things uh, for yourself uh, without having to rely on other people. But when things do go wrong. People come to the fore. We're basically pack animals, let's face it, and um, uh, it's in our nature to, to help people out who are in trouble generally, uh, and uh, it's also in our nature to perhaps seek help when we really, really, really need it. But um, I think there needs to mm -hmm. be a level that you get to for a trip and a mindset of going on a long trip is get yourself as ready as you can be so you can be as self-sufficient as possible. Just my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have because to agree. Um, we don't see a, a lot of stories about people being overly reliant. But unfortunately, I know of, well, I can think of two or three 
right off the top of my head that basically went off on a trip with no money and bummed off people all the way. Stayed for ages, let the people buy them food. And I remember one story of a community bought them a camera and all kinds of stuff. It's just, it, it leaves me speechless. I can't believe that people would do that. Fortunately, there have only been a very few instances of that. And I, I completely agree with Brian that you should be completely self-reliant. Why should somebody else pay for your trip? You want to go on the trip. You want to do it. Be self-reliant. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, we're not talking, like, like Brian said there specifically, you can't be prepared for everything. You can't have everything covered. But when you do the necessary work to try and cover yourself, to do your, your again, that, that, that term, due diligence, mm-hmm. then when you need help, that's like the purest form of help, isn't it? You know, when, when somebody's, yeah. when you've done your best effort to, to do something and then you need help and then somebody says, hey, I can help you with that. You know, that's, that's kind of what, in my mind anyway, what help is supposed to be. Yeah, totally agree. In a way, like, it's a bit of an honor thing, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. You need to be able to go out and, and not be a sponger. Um, you need to be able to go out and if you are going to ask for help, have something that you can offer back. So you're mm. not constantly a taker. Mm. Yeah. 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 You, should, you should be giving back as much as you take, if not more. But I mean, sometimes you can't, you don't have something that you can give back just purely and simply because what you've got doesn't fit with what somebody needs. But that doesn't mean that you don't bear that thought in mind. And the next time you see somebody that wants help, you jump straight in there before anybody else does and you do what you can. Because sometimes it is what goes around comes around, isn't it? And yeah, um, sometimes that just keeps you going. I mean, I, I know of people who have set off on a very, very small budget intending to stay with people and work as they went and that sort of thing. But they went out with the intent of publicizing um, in the best way that they possibly could, that this world is full of people that are just brilliant. Um, they're not fundamentalists and terrorists all over the place, et cetera, et cetera. And we shouldn't be afraid of people. And they just use their way of traveling um, to highlight that. Would I want to do that? I'm not sure if I would feel comfortable with it. I'd be very uncomfortable. But that's just me. Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind with this is really big that I want to talk about when we get into it is is the bike preparation, you know, because we talk about, um, we've talked many times about, you know, what you need to know about repairing your bike or or what you, um, what you mechanical skills you should have, those type of things. I, I don't think that you should know everything about motorcycles to go anywhere, for instance. And, and I think this is sort of germane to everything we're talking about here today. For instance, if you want to travel with your auto club card, you know, that gets you free towing, everywhere you go, if, as long as you stay in those areas, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, that's your, that's your due diligence. That's your planning. That's your preparation. That's being self-reliant as your motorcycle traveler is going where you've got the auto club card to get towed. If you get a flat tire, for instance, but if you go beyond the, those areas of coverage and then sort of stand there with your handout, well, then that's something completely different. Then you're no longer the self-reliant traveler. You're someone who's leaning on local resources. You're a sponge. Yeah. Part of long distance travel is, I think, spending the time to think about the things that could go wrong, um, the things where you are going to get stuck. And I don't think these are negatives, but they are, it's just your mind opening up to the sensible possibilities. And sometimes the what ifs encourage you to make important decisions. Um, and one of the problems that um, I see too much is that people do aim to be self sufficient and then they work so hard at it and it takes them so long, they never actually 
get out on the road because <laughs> they're never mm-hmm. prepared enough. Yeah, that, that was the point yeah, I was going to make, uh, Sam. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, you, some people just uh, procrastinate too much, or they, they they think they've got to prepare to you know look be an A grade mechanic before they leave. Well, no, no, you don't need that, but you do need some basic skills and basic uh, skills in all areas actually before you head off on your trip. Agree. I would disagree. You don't need, but you should have in order to make for a a better trip, a more comfortable trip, a happier trip, a less stressful trip. The more skills you have, the less stress. If you head off and have no idea about first aid, your your first aid kit's got a couple of Band-Aids in it. Uh, Your toolkit consists of a crescent wrench and a hammer. Yeah, you're going to be stressed about things going wrong, getting sick, having the bike break. And that's going to turn your trip into an unhappy trip because you're not relaxed and comfortable that whatever happens, you can deal with it. I think that's true, but, but let me give you this sort of analogy. You, you know, you, somebody who has no preparation jumps on a motorcycle and rides off into a desert and then finds themselves with stuck, broken down with no water or food. And some local people who are traveling by come along and they have to give them their water and their food to help them out. It's not because they were they were someone who tried and were prepared and were in need. It's someone who didn't even bother to take the time to try and prepare themselves. There's always time we need help, of course. As Brian said, we're pack animals. It's the way we work of, of helping one, one another out. But to, to not go and do your preparation before you went on something like that, like going into the desert, is, is kind of negligent, isn't it? In, in some ways. And I know that's an extreme case, but that's the analogy I think makes the point. It's not extreme, Jim. Um, I'll, I'll cite you a quick example. We were about to cross the Simpson Desert, and uh, there's an area where you, uh, where most people gather and camp before they head off across <coughs> the really difficult 1100 sand dunes desert. And uh, there was a guy there on a motorcycle by himself, and a ranger came along, and his job was to go around the campsites, talk to people, where you're going, what are you doing. Are you you got everything you need, all that sort of stuff. And he actually berated this solo bicycle, uh, motorcyclist, and uh, quite rightly so. He didn't have enough um, water in case things went wrong. He didn't have a, he had just enough fuel to get himself across the desert and no more. And he said, I'm sick and tired of people like you going across the desert and we have to come out and rescue you. And if you do break down and you're relying on other people, you're a bloody fool. And, you know, he got stuck right into him. And I, I really understand that. He, was, he wasn't going to let him cross the desert until he found someone that was doing the same, so, yeah, the same so, um, route because the same there's plenty route. of ways you can get across the Simpson Desert. So people are just foolhardy. But then you go, you know, you need to be prepared. But I agree with, um, with Grant. You can't go off on a trip expecting other people to look after you and – and um, take care of you. You've got to be able to look after yourself up to a point. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Not not use yeah. and abuse the locals. Michelle? Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I, it, you know, growing on that foundation that they've set forth, I don't think that when you're going out and looking at doing an adventure, that your enjoyment, your adventure should come at the expense or risk or jeopardy to anybody else. Yeah. So I don't think you should do things or not prepare properly and increase your chances of being a burden to someone else or putting yourself in a position that you're likely going to have problems. I think it's incumbent upon us to do everything we can to keep not just ourselves safe, but remember the bigger picture that if we're in a position where we need help, 
we're going to have to put that burden on somebody else. And I'm more inclined also as a person who helps other people to what's the old saying, I help people who help themselves. I'll help Uh. anybody, but I prefer to help people who are already trying to do their best and have done, you know, some of the basic things and have tried and everybody has bad luck accidents happen but somebody that's just out doing you know foolhardy things and isn't considerate of what you know what's going to happen to themselves and other people who care about them or who come to help them i don't appreciate that and i don't think it's the right thing to do Totally, totally agree. I mean, sometimes um, people can put themselves in a situation where they actually threaten somebody else's life through their behavior. Mm. You know, somebody has to go out into that desert and blah, de blah. And yeah, um, it's, it's just wrong. Yeah, we see that a lot here with mountain rescues. People are completely unprepared for the mountain territories. I mean, a few miles from where I live, there's a 6,000 foot mountain with a ton of snow on it right now. And people are getting rescued off there on a regular basis because they head out in a pair of running shoes and a T-shirt at noon on a on a autumn day. By three o'clock, the weather can turn completely, and it's snowing a blizzard. And guess who has to go out and rescue them? Mountain rescue crews are out there. There might be a slight difference though with that from what we're talking about because with that that that's not knowing that. And and when you're ignorant of something you know, you, there's not much you can do. You know, people will go and, I don't know, like if it was in Australia, swim in a spot and not as a tourist, not think, think about crocodiles or, mm-hmm. y- you know, that sort of thing. So that, but I would argue, I would argue, Jim, though, that it's incumbent upon us to do research about that too. I mean, uh, even, I, I mean, when you're out going in the mountains, there are usually warnings. I mean, if you do adequate research and you go to read some blogs and learn about, actually properly learn about the activity, you'll usually hear those warnings from people where they say, just be aware when you're going up the mountain, you need to be prepared for the possibility of bad weather or lightning or, you know, whatever, or sharks in this area. And I do think that research is a big part of that preparation process. Yeah. Now we can go back to, I'm always, when we're talking about this in the desert thing, I'm reminded of Ted Simon riding across the desert on his old Triumph and running out of gas because he had no idea how much more gas he'd use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And with the days of information like we have now, I mean, there's no excuse for that. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's a little bit different now for us because we, there's so much information available. What was your point there, Grant? Maybe I missed that. The point is that complete ignorance, you don't know sometimes, well, people generally often don't know what they don't know. Yeah, exactly. They had no yeah. clue that there was a difference in fuel mileage between cruising down a backcountry road and flogging it through the desert. Right. And that would be one of those things you come across and you would, you would be understanding. I mean, you'd know it. Okay. That's a, you know, it's a a rookie mistake, so to speak. I have to put my hand up here because when I set off down through Africa, I didn't know those things. I didn't know those things, but, but I had prepared to the extent of, I'd worked out what sort of miles I was going to be covered, covering, and I'd got hold of a decent map, which said which towns along the way, if there were towns, had fuel. And I looked at the distances and thought, right, okay, so I need X amount of fuel. And then I added a third on top of that for eventualities and the opportunity to explore side turnings. So you know, that, that was just common sense to me. It was logical. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I give, I, yeah. I give you credit, big credit for that. Sadly, there's an awful lot of people where common is not part of their sense. 
I'm going to have a crack at a couple of well-known travellers here. Um, it just did a recent trip on electric bikes from the bottom of um, um, South America <laughs> to California. Can't yeah. think who that might be, but I'll go ahead. Now, they, they might have been using this for dramatic uh, license for a, a movie, but seriously, if you think a, a battery is going to last as long as it did in California as it does when the temperature gets to minus two or three or four or ten, you've got rocks in your head, surely. My favourite part about the, yeah. their ex- adventure was when they expected a village where you would be hard-pressed to find enough power to charge up a mobile phone was going to be able to charge up to electric motorbikes. <laughs> and a truck. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, they probably didn't have the resources to figure that out or look into that with Vans, though, right? I mean... Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> You're surprised they weren't carrying a giant industrial generator on the back of the truck. Well, yes. I thought they were at one point. I think they were. Oh, yeah. I think they were. Doesn't okay. everybody yeah. travel like that? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Be prepared, right? But I, but I think Brian nailed it when he said it might have been done for dramatic effect. Because uh, I, I think I so. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to think so anyway. There, there is a certain amount of tongue-in-cheek going on, isn't there? Well, I got that feeling that there was. Oh, yeah. You mean no. just now? No, no, from the from, from the trip. Um, <laughs> anyway, so... um. So we, we we somewhat agree, I, I think, on this. I think in, in the general sense, we we agree with some um, slight variances, I think. But I like that. Do, do you want to get into talking about things that we should prepare for? Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's a big, wide choice, isn't it? What it should is. you prepare for? <laughs> what so, well, can well, you prepare for? The, the easiest one, and the one that I wanted to start with personally, was, was the motorcycle itself. Because there's so much talk about how much you're supposed to know for repairing your motorcycle. We've talked before, but we just did just not long ago where we were talking about, you know, you should be able to repair a flat tire, for instance. Does that stand up? I mean, what, what should we be prepared to fix on our motorcycles? What level of skill should we have? What level of understanding should we have of our motorcycle and how it works and ways to repair it when we're heading off on an adventure? Or does the adventure dictate that or at least have some weight in it? Oh. Definitely the adventure has some dictation on that. And if you're going to cruise down the highway and never leave pavement, you could get away with not knowing very much at all and just be prepared to pay somebody to load your bike on a truck and take it to the nearest repair place. But if you're going to head off into the dirt, that becomes a whole different level where you really need to know what you're doing or have at least some basics. Okay. And what's wrong with that first example, Grant, that first part you said there, what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? That's that's questionable. I mean, some people have no mechanical ability whatsoever. Many, many years ago, I taught a um, basic motorcycle maintenance course for night school classes. And I had one guy that took the course twice. And at the end of it, we both agreed he should just pay to get it fixed. He had no concept, <laughs> no feel, no ability to understand what was I mean, he barely could figure out which way a wrench worked, you know, like tightening a nut. Oh, yeah. Which way is that? Oh, yeah. All right. Um, it was hopeless. It was really sad. Um, he was a massage therapist, so he had good, he was good with his hands. But fix anything mechanical. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just going to let that slide. Don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah. Don't go there yes. Too tempting. <laughs> but mechanical ability, zero. So there are people like that, and that's fine. 
Um, Susan always says, you know, here, here th this needs whatever. She has no mechanical ability. So for expecting her to, to learn how to fix her bike and do some maintenance and repairs, nah. But that should adjust this person with no mechanical abilities um, plans on where they're going to go and how they're going to travel and where they're, what they're going to do. If you have no mechanical ability, have no skills, don't want to learn, can't learn, unable to learn, whatever, then stick to the easy stuff where if things go wrong, somebody's going to be along pretty soon and help you get sorted. But if you want to go somewhere else, hmm. To find easy stuff. I mean, when, when I went down to Africa, and I know I'm saying I, I, I a lot, but I did start off as a very novice motorcyclist and I did the best that I possibly could. And one of the things that I thought about was that I don't know very much about mechanicking. So the first thing I did was buy a new motorcycle instead of a beat up, uh, affordable old secondhand bike, because I thought, well, um, buying a new motorcycle, that's going to at least mean that um, the parts aren't, aren't completely worn out before I hit the road. But I'd also knew that I was going to have to go through some really remote areas. So what was I going to do if I broke down? The, the stories were out there about people who broke down in the desert and places like that and just got stuffed. So I decided that I wasn't going to go to really extreme parts on the way down. I was going to stay on well-used tracks because my attitude was, look, if there's a road then sooner or later, there's going to be a vehicle coming down it. And if I can't fix it with my manual and the tools that I've got and the little amount of experience, then I'm going to flag a truck down. I'm going to ask the driver if we can put it on the back and I'm going to pay him to take me to the nearest town where I can find somebody to help work him with me on it. And that was my plan B. The alternative to that was I didn't go. But yeah. the thing is, that is a plan, though. You just said, and pay them. Like, you're planning yes, right. on, on using some mm. local things. Like, like and, and what we're talking about here, and maybe this will sort of maybe put a finer point to this. What we're talking about is basic repairs. We're not talking about learning to MacGyver things. Uh, no. MacGyver things is a term, I think everybody knows what that is. Actually, you know, it's funny with the term MacGyver, the the uh, the dictionary the, the Merriam-Webster dictionary only added that in 2022. Can you believe that they added that to the dictionary? I mean that's been around for a long time. It comes from a, an old TV show, but but basically it's a slang term that means to to bodge something. That's another word for it, or repair something out of what you've got. Find some way to make something work. So that's one skill in my mind. But the other one are those basic skills that you have. Like, for instance, if you uh, drove an early car, you know, back in, when, when cars were first, the Model T, for instance, or something like that, you would probably either be very rich or you would know how to do things like change your tire because tires were so unreliable back then. So it went along with operating the machine, the understanding of how to do it. And I almost feel like, like I do feel like, I feel like with motorcycles, the tire thing still is one of those things in my mind. I'd love to, to get everybody's feedback on this is that 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 basic repair level that we're talking about, I, I think starts with being able to repair a flat tire because it, that, and, and of course that depends on where you're, you're going. But, but to me, that's like a basic, what, what do you guys think about that to begin with? Uh, uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. I agree with that. Maybe I'll hand over to Shirley about the tire pliers. Oh, here. Don't start me on the tire pliers. I've been <laughs> I was going to try and be really good today. Listen. but oh, Bloody hell, the bloody tire pliers. <laughs> oh, Shirley. <laughs> if ever we used them, Listen, I'd be I glad, but we too, never used them. Oh, that's right. I, I had them in the bottom of Shirley's pannier so I could take the, the, the 
break the bead of a, a tubeless tyre and take the the uh, the tyre off the rim if I needed to, but I never had to. <laughs> but I was prepared for it. Exactly. Yeah, but the thing is, if you didn't, if you did not take that tool, Brian, that would be the time that you need it for sure. Of course. Yep. Thank you, Jim. Cheryl, did you hear that? I heard it. I heard it. (laughs) Cheryl, did you still carry that? Because if not, perhaps you can pop it in the post because I could do it. (laughs) There's much lighter methods now. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, I agree with you. I think that people should learn the basics before they go out on the road. I learned how to do things like oil and filter changes because on a long journey, I was going to have to do that. And um, I learned how to do the valve clearances. Well, on an old bike like mine, you could do that. I learned how to adjust the suspension because um, you need to adjust the suspension according to how much weight you're carrying and the types of roads you ca- um, you're riding on. And these are all basics that people need to know how to do. But I mean, how many people set out not having a clue how to change a bulb on their bike or don't even know where the fuse box is on their bike? These are all basics that are really easy to learn but so important, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I, I'll take it back a step, Jim. I think you also need to know your bike. And uh, For example, the old uh, Honda Africa Twins, fantastic treble bike, and we used a hell of a lot, but they ate rectifiers. So if you know that, take one with you. Yeah, it's, it's a part that you mightn't be able to get in uh, out of Mongolia, but it's such a simple fix if you've got one with you. So... Uh, to me, knowing your bike and being ready for things like that. A couple of spark plugs, how to, you know, if, if your bike starts mm. to miss and carry on, it can only be two things. It can be spark or it can be fuel, really. And there's some basics in that that you should understand. And nine times out of 10, you can get yourself out of sticky situations just by that little bit of knowledge. Mm. Two, that's two of the common things. Of course, it could be other things. I mean, you oh, can have cool. a timing issue, a valve timing issue. I mean, there, there yeah. could be a lot they're of things. More, of course. And they're and much more and serious. Might, and that might be a bit above some people's abilities, but um, you know, Definitely, it, won't, yeah. it won't stop you from traveling if your bike's missing and carrying on. But if it stops dead, it might just be a, a spark plug or it might be you know, a, a block fuel filter, you know? This episode of Raw is supported by freshtracks.co.uk. Freshtracks works with companies or groups to motivate, inspire, and build communication skills through team building. And they've been doing it for a lot of years now. And they have a host of programs to suit any company's requirements. They work with companies like Mars, Pfizer, Comic Relief, and, and many more. Their website, freshtracks.co.uk. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio Raw, freshtracks.co.uk. Thank you, Fresh Tracks. You know, we um, we recently got an email from somebody who was saying about repairs and, and asking, saying that, how do you get, because we've mentioned before on Raw here, uh, how do you get this knowledge of how to repair your motorcycle? Where do you go? Grant mentioned that he used to teach this uh, mechanical rec- course where you learn how to repair your motorcycle. I guess it's not that common and not that easy to find. And the thing is with some of it is a lot of working on it. And, and anybody who works in their, on anything knows this. There are certain things you learn by doing. So the Mm -hmm. more you work on things, you'll start to get to the point where you can tighten up a bolt and you know when you're over tightening it. But as a greenhorn, you won't have a clue and you'll likely strip the threads. You know, you you, once you understand, you know you can't put that much torque on a bolt that size with this with this thread. All those things are things that you learn over time. How do you gain that knowledge? 
And and that's a really difficult one. And, and I'll just tell you quickly what, what I responded was. I, I said some of what you just said there, Brian, um, when you were talking about uh, getting to know your bike. One of the things I said was learn some basic knowledge, you know, start researching how things work. So you just have a basic understanding, you know, that the how the engine works, intake, compression, power, exhaust, those type of things. So you can get the basics of a motorcycle. You're never going to be able to do all of the repairs unless you spend years uh, getting into it. But understanding those basics will then take you along to other places. Then learn those basics as tire changing, oil changing, changing your bulbs. The fuses were mentioned already, those type of things. And then what I said was look up your model and look for common problems figure out what it takes to fix it and how people fix it. It's all over the internet now. It's easy to find. It's just a matter of sitting there at your computer and spending the time. And that will also increase your knowledge and understanding of how the motorcycle works. In particular, with with your bike, it has never been as easy as it is now, in particular for your model and make of bike. I mean, I don't think you could get any better prepared easier than what you can today. Sound advice, Jim. And I mean, there's YouTube films all over the place. I, I know my R80GS reasonably well now, but I, I still get out there and have a look. And sometimes it can be a long time since I've had to do a job. So out comes the YouTube search and there I am. Oh yeah, of course, that was how I did it. Um, it's it's brilliant, isn't it? Google's fantastic. Yeah, It's fantastic yeah. for finding what's, what's wrong with your bike. It's much harder to find what's right with your bike because everything that's wrong, everybody <laughs> talks about and it's well known. Yeah. But I wanted to comment on Jim's uh, comment about um, night school maintenance courses and stuff. Um, I was surprised recently to discover that there's all kinds of night school courses or even day courses on motorcycle maintenance and weekend courses at shops and all kinds of stuff all over the place. All you have to do is a little bit of research and you'd be surprised what you find. Great. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. My office is is like a damn my office is like a damn encyclopedia because I've got so many damn bikes. And the first thing I do is look at, uh, (laughs) uh, I I look at uh, problems with this particular bike. You know, and uh, I try and mitigate all that with uh, each bike I buy, particularly with the latest mm-hmm. one. But anyway, I used to buy the manual for everything that I bought new, everything that I bought, not new rather, anything I bought, I would buy a manual, a shop manual, but you can't get those anymore. No, yeah. but you can get them online. You can get downloadable yeah. versions. They're often available. And when you're traveling, that's the one to have. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to bring up the story of Peter and Kay Forwood, who with really no motorcycle knowledge, headed off around the world and they did every single country in the world, 500,000 something kilometers on a Harley Electroglide box standard and with no mechanical knowledge fixed whatever came up and whatever went wrong simply by Kay reading the manual and telling Peter what to do. Mm-hmm. It wow. worked just fine for them. Yeah. 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 That's so right. yeah. having the manual saves all kinds of aggravation. It may be a heavy old lump to carry around, but when you suddenly find yourself where there's no internet signal and therefore you can't access the the online manual and things like that, oh, it's worth it. Yes. And funny, the um, our, my tire changing DVD that I've produced as part of the Achievable Dream series, I got a story from a couple of guys. One of them had a flat tire, stopped in the middle of nowhere. He says, now what do I do? Another guy came along and noticed the HU sticker on the guy's bike and said, uh, have you seen Grant's DVD on um, how to change tires? Uh, said, no. Guess what he had on his laptop with him? And they sat there oh and watched goodness. the video on the spot and fixed the flat. Fantastic. Because they had the video right there. Nice. 
So, you know, and I, I would say as a person who probably of the group here is the least skilled as far as maintenance and knowledge of being able to work on my bike independently with some level of confidence. But what I do have is an ability. I, I feel like I know my bike well enough to recognize problems and I understand at least what they are, even if I'm not comfortable and confident enough to fix them. And I also recognize the importance of preventative maintenance. So when mm-hmm. I'm you know, yep. taking care of or using my bike and I'm on the road, I actually research far enough out when I'm traveling solo. I have had the great luxury of traveling with people um, or a travel partner who has incredible mechanic skills. So I've been very spoiled in that regard. But when I've traveled solo, I research in advance when that, when and where I'll be along my projected route so that I can find a shop to get service. So I'll know where I have that opportunity and I plan that into my route. But in the meantime, I'm really pretty good about keeping up with preventative maintenance. So I, you know, clean and loop my chain, um, make sure that, you know, I'm not seeing anything, checking for loose bolts, checking for loose wires, taking care of um, oil filter. I, I have uh, swapped out to like a K&N air filter, so I don't have to worry about my air filter as often um, or it's easier for me to clean it as opposed to carrying a bunch of spare air filters. I check my tires and I'm really, um, kind of very watchful about tires in particular, because I don't want to have a problem with those when I'm out on the road. I do know how to change a tire. Um, you know, I can do some basic stuff. I'm comfortable with changing fuses, changing out a battery, changing my tires. Um, you know, I've, I've sat in on my, uh, bike, for example, valve clearances being adjusted, but that's not something I'm comfortable doing on my own. And I'm the first person to admit that. But when I'm traveling on my own, I plan for that and I'm comfortable scheduling any service that I'm going to need at a shop and knowing that I need to plan it and, you know, budget for that as well, as opposed to, you know, asking for help along the way. And I'm not opposed to doing that if I have to, but I go into it just trying to make sure that I'm going to take care of whatever needs I and my bike will have along the way. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I think that's quite Michelle. a bit of knowledge that you have, yeah. Michelle. I mean, really being oh, able to thanks. swap a battery and, and do fuses and things like that. That's quite a bit. And the, and the valve clearances, I mean, you know, that that's not really something that you're going to do on the side of the road as a, as a, as a right. breakdown, right? That's going to be something that <laughs> right. that's part of your preventative maintenance. And I think it, that's handled perfectly. I mean, I, I think you're, yeah, you, you're, you're doing very well in that instance. I, I think just like some, some very basics, like the oil change and the tire repair, I mean, you don't even have to really do the oil change, but the tire repair for sure, because it's such a, and and if you have a chain also understanding your chain and adjusting your chain and those things are so fundamental to it as like a showstopper for you for riding. And they're not that uncommon either. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's the important thing or the benchmark for me is wanting to make sure that if I'm out someplace that I can get myself to a main road, even if I have to limp the bike along or put in, You know, maybe, for example, I've seen people do this where they've got the wrong size inner tube. Maybe they already used their rear inner tube and they don't have a spare inner tube anymore and they can't patch it, whatever. So they've installed their front inner tube into the back rim to limp themselves to a main road. Whatever kind of bodge repair that is, I feel like I have at least the wherewithal to understand what my options are. Um, and I really will make every effort to get out to a main road and try and get myself a truck or some help or whatever. And I'm, it, it, and those are options for me. I mean, I, I'm comfortable asking for a truck and asking for help and paying for that service to get myself to a shop so that, you know, that's at least plan B or plan C if it needs to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I can tell you that I have personal personal experience of um, Michelle um, plan being <laughs> and limping to safety. You don't yes, need you to do. tell the whole story. <laughs> no, in but fact, you, you, you limped beautifully. <laughs> in fact, it's funny that you say that because I was going through my mental toolkit, Sam, and I was thinking, you know, when I have this toolkit that I put together from now on, I'm going to have to have a laminated piece of paper to use as a makeshift funnel for my bike. Thanks to you. That's given me that idea. So. It's just a simple idea, isn't it? And it works so well. Yeah, and, and, and listen, any, anybody that's listening to this, um, do a, a laminated version of your the wiring diagram for your specific bike there for the go. right year, et cetera, et cetera, because there are too many sort of almost generic wiring diagrams that change from one model to the next or from one year to the next. So have one of those, get that laminated, have a color one so it's easy to follow. Um, even if you don't really know what you're doing, somebody else might, you can call on them for, hey, guess what, some help, some guidance. But um, yeah, that two uses tool, hey, Michelle? Here, here. <laughs> so I'll, I'll shed a little light on the subject. Last summer when um, I had the great pleasure of going for a ride with Sam in South Dakota and we went over to Wyoming to Devil's Tower, super hot day. Um, we took off on bikes and we had, I don't even remember, probably 90 miles to ride each direction. And we were probably 40 or so miles into the ride, 45, and my bike started to heat up and I kept watching the thermostat gauge climbing higher and higher and higher. So I finally pulled over. And I was looking down as I was riding and I thought I could see something on my right boot pulled over and, and Sam pulled over behind me and I said, I'm losing antifreeze. So I looked down um, and saw that I had a lot of spray on my boot and on my uh, crash guard. So I knew I'd lost a lot of antifreeze. The engine was really hot. You could hear it ticking. So I waited a while, let it cool down and, you know, had the bike obviously off um, really couldn't do a lot. We were, I don't even remember, maybe five miles out of town, six miles out of the next town, Sundance, Wyoming. And, um, so we just waited till it cooled off and I started it up. I knew there probably was very little, if any antifreeze left in the engine, which I know is a scary thing, but we were on the side of the road. So once it was cooled off, I started it up, rode a few more miles and the plan was just to keep pulling over. Once the heat got too high, let it cool off and kind of limp my way into town. And then uh, we pulled it apart and looked and I had, and I don't know if I've ever even told Sam, but I had a tiny little hairline crack in a hose. And so um, Sam had, and here I am not the planner that I should have been because I'm so close to home and I took it for granted, didn't have all of my tool roll with me. But Sam did, of course, and came to the rescue. And so we put a little uh, tape on the inside of the hose and on the outside of the hose and put it back together and got some antifreeze and filled her up. And she got home safely and, and rode herself to the, well, I rode her to the shop a couple of weeks later and got that sorted out. But yeah, I mean, even little things like that can, can pop up. I thought you were going to say you're still riding it like that. No, <laughs> it, was, it was a good repair, Jim, but not that good. But listen, Michelle had a plan, a plan C. So she's just described um, yeah. what the problem was, and um, so the plan B was um, to do exactly what she said. But her plan C, and she cracked me up with this. She said, "Well, if it doesn't cool down, then we'll do this." And she went over to the side of the road, went on one leg, and stuck her thumb out with a cheek. <laughs> this is true. It never works for me. 
I don't know. Jim, you're just not showing enough of the right leg. Uh, That's right. I'll do that. (laughs) A little uh, precaution for anyone watching their temperature gauge when they're losing antifreeze. When your antifreeze gets below your temperature sensor, you'll no longer get a reading. So um, it can look like it's cooling down when the bike is actually heating up. So you want to be really careful. Well, it mm, kept point. heating. And yes, yeah. I appreciate that that tip and that reminder, Jim. Thank you. It kept heating up very quickly. So I knew there was still some in there, but yes, it, it was not good. That's, and what bike is this? My KLR. Yeah, it's great, eh? So you, you fix it just with tape and away you go again. I just think that's so cool. And, that, and, that's, KLR. Yeah, and that's one of those MacGyver repairs, yeah, right? Or the, right. the bodges that we're talking about. And when it comes to that sort of thing, I mean, how much do you guys think you should be able to, to do on your own? Like, I mean, to what, I mean, cause to me, that's a pretty, that's kind of an advanced repair, right? You know, to, to figure that out and understand that you're going to be able to seal or at least possibly seal it with that. How, how far should we be able to go? I'm not sure I agree with you on that. I think uh, it's fairly obvious water's coming out of this thing here. I need to stop it. At the very <laughs> least, wrap some duct tape around it. I mean, like you're bleeding or something. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, you know, I just Go think on. it's kind of ingenious what they were doing. You know, they're thinking, you know, put wrap it on the outside, wrap it on the inside, doing whatever they can. I'm, I'm not saying it's the best or the or the right or the or or whatever what anybody else would do, but I just think it's it's, it's you know it's interesting to think they were thinking it through and they really went to town on it and. It, and found something that worked, but how, how far should we be able to go? How how much should we have this MacGyver ability? Should we be able to do bodge repairs? In this instance, Jim, as far as a shady spot, because it was a hot day. <laughs> yeah. It was a very hot day, yeah. And I, in my frame of reference, is just getting yourself to a position where you can get back to civilization or get help. And I was never, I, I was in the U.S., so it wasn't an issue at all. Um, I was in the U.S., I was safe. Um, yeah. And I, I was able to get a tow vehicle if I needed to and sort myself out. And that was really my threshold of, you know, success. Michelle, is, is that your toast ready or? No, actually there's a tornado warning and they're saying to take shelter. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, yeah. So are you going to do that? I am. I'm going to take the laptop downstairs. So if I mute for a little bit or if I'm offline, you'll know what happened. Okay. I'll check back in. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, please wow. do. If you this don't check back body. in, we'll be worried the house is gone. Yeah. <laughs> I recognize nice. the sound. We get it here too. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the emergency alert on the on the cell phones. Yeah, and, and they got it's that. it's a type of sound you can't ignore it. I, I don't know how you shut it off, Michelle, but f- for me it seems like I'm always gripping the phone trying to get it to shut up and I, and I can't get it to stop. But it goes off with Jim. some sort of emergency like that. I made burger roller eyeballs when I got back here because I had um, a radar app on my phone because there were so many um, storms floating around the States when I was over there last year. I put this radar app on because that way, well, actually I could go a hundred miles in that direction and then go right and I'll probably miss it. So, and that's what I did. Mm. Um, but I forgot to change, to turn it off. And so when I get back, I'm getting all of these storm warnings from the United States. He <laughs> keeps looking at me, Sam, what are you doing? <laughs> and you probably just like it because it reminds you of the trip, right? Exactly. Oh, look, they've got a storm there. I wrote through there. That's better than us, Jim. We ended up riding into a tornado and, and having to shelter beside the bike as the as the hailstones came down that heavy. And the next day wow. we were having breakfast and people sitting behind us were talking about the storm. And they were storm chasers. And I thought, you've driven voluntarily uh, into what we uh, were trying to hide from. And they thought we were very brave because we were out there on our bike. If only they knew it wasn't bravery, just 
damn stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ever since then, Brian and Shirley have changed the names of their helmets to ice lids. I'm a big fan of the weather app. Um, Sam, uh, I, I love watching the radar when there's rain coming around here, but I love the weather app in Iceland the best because not only does it have rain, it has wind and it has earthquakes. And you can see all the little dots where all the earthquakes have been in the last hour and where they're expected in the next hour. It's awesome. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> So, Brian, what do you think? What's the bare minimum of being able to fix on the bike, do you think? Uh, tyres, and I think there's preventative stuff you can do with tyres. Seeing people riding with uh, canvas showing on their tyres, that's not good. Plan, plan <sighs> yeah. your trip a little bit so you know where you can, where you can get tyres and um, uh, organise yourself so that you change tyres. And if there's a little bit of meat left in them, don't worry about it. Put a new tyre on. And I, I think I've yep. related the story before about riding Australia with a mate and um, we got to Darwin and I had a fair bit of meat on my back tyre, but I said, no, nah, I'm changing tyres. And he didn't. He ended up getting a flat tyre stuck in the middle of nowhere because he had no uh, wear left in his tyres and I was fine. But, you know, know the conditions. Did you wait with him? Uh No. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I'm just wondering because no. that was an, that would be a prime example of you know you've done your your work you've planned ahead you did the right thing somebody else decided they weren't going to bother with it and then they can sort of drag you into their problem their dilemma well, from not yeah, preparing, not being self reliant that's right but we made sure there was a tow truck coming to fix to catch him which would take at least two hours I think even longer and the flies were. 50 million flies to every person out there. And uh, I said, uh, sorry, mate, I'm not standing around getting covered in flies. I'm heading off to town. You can wait for the tow truck. So, you know. Right. So in Australia, it's more of a, you know, every person for themselves. Ah, thing, right? well, yeah. <laughs> to, a, to a certain extent. Yeah, buggery. <laughs> but um, but tyres, tyres are one thing. I, I think a bit of knowledge about how um, your bike works, as Michelle just explain, uh, you can see a problem, you can fix it a little bit, you know. It doesn't have to be a complete repair. Um, I'm a little bit fortunate being a farmer's son. My dad could fix anything with a piece of eight-gauge wire and get it working. Universal joints, uh, you know, power takeoffs off the back of tractors, you name it, he could fix it with a bit of um, uh, eight-gauge wire. Um, Nowadays, it's gaffer tape and uh, cable ties. You know, if it moves and uh, it shouldn't, gaffer tape it, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, you can you can get by with uh, just that little bit of knowledge. Um, but knowing your bike is a big one. Um, one thing that uh, we had on one of our trips was uh, alternator pelt give out, gave out on a, on a bike. Well, okay, uh, every time we travel, we carry a spare alternator belt. It's a ten dollar part, so you know, and it takes up no room. But if one goes, you've got it with you. Um, little things like that. Um, mm-hmm. That's a- researching and knowing what can go wrong with your particular model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Yeah. And yeah. he was very lucky yeah. that when the alternator belt went on the bike, and we had to wait three days for another one to arrive, we were very close to a beach resort. <laughs> 
that's right, we were too. Oh, life's purgatory sometimes. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, and that's planning. Well done. Had it, had it happened anywhere else, there could have been marital trouble. <laughs> but even then, you know, the alternator belt disintegrated. And uh, once the alternator belt disintegrated, um, I was able to ride on the battery. I reckon we did about 50 k's just on the battery to, to get ourselves off the road, which was pretty damn good. Um, but, you know, little things like that. Being prepared, know your bike is, to me, one of the big things. Um, yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that. You know, I, I, I carry a spare spoke now because uh, sometimes going over rough roads, spokes on a heavily loaded bike can break. Um, uh, and with the GS, with the tubeless tyres, they're very easy to repair. Uh, but if you've got a spare one, why not use it? And they take up no room. Yeah. Yeah, I always carried them as well. And Just one? Well, several. I carry three yeah. or four rears. I don't bother yeah, with fronts, yeah. but three or four rears. Yeah, yes. I think I've got... I always carried a couple of each. Yeah, I think I've got two. Two rears, I think, and that's it. Mm. Yeah, but at least you're looking at your wheels to make sure that... to sp- See if... So that you can spot a broken spoke. I, and I think that's the biggest thing. What's mm-hmm. a fast way to check? Just quickly, Grant, what's a fast way to check your spokes to, to see if the tension is correct? <laughs> To check if the tension is correct, all you want yeah. to do is make sure that they're tight. And right, but, but you take wrench and you go, go ding, ding, ding all the way around. Yeah. They should yeah. all sound roughly the same high-pitched ding instead of dong. Right. Uh, just check them and make sure they're good. So even if you don't understand to look for a broken spoke, you can hear it just by hearing the change in tone Pitched. when you when you tap Absolutely. it. They True. All have that. Yeah. And I, that brings up what I was going to talk about was first is prevention by checking and inspecting Every evening, make sure everything's good. Check your fluid levels, water, oil, brake, brake um, fluids, all that kind of stuff. Check your tires. Actually spin the tires and have a look. Make sure there's no problems anywhere, no rocks. I mean, I've seen nails there in a bike for several days. And wow, it's still sealed, still holding, but it's going to fail. So you better get it fixed. And evening is a good time to do it. Um, don't do it in the morning because that's when you find things are wrong and then your day is gone fixing it instead of fixing it in the evening before. Mm-hmm. Um, check the tire for inflation. Use a gauge if you're not sure. Um, do you smell anything? Anything's burnt, oily, sweet. You know, something's, something's leaking somewhere and you're smelling it. There's a problem. Um, check your brake lights, especially your brake light. Make sure that's working from both brakes, front and rear. Just, and just generally have a look around the bike. And finally, I give everything a wiggle. Grab everything, give it a shake. Does it feel tight? Did it feel the same as it did yesterday and the day before? Or maybe it doesn't feel the same as it did before. Any change is something you really want to look for. So if you do that on a, on a regular basis, you'll find problems before they happen. You'll Great prevent problems. And that's right. 90% of it. The other thing that we've talked about on here before is looking for loose bolts. And looking for those telltale rust circles around a bolt, any sign of yep. movement that you'll see around something like that. That's the early sign as you're talking about that you can catch it then you say, oh, I've got a, I've got an engine mount loosening up or something like that. It's your time to, to, to tighten it rather than find the bolt missing the next day. Yeah, I've met people who say that who say that they never check their bikes over and they never wash them, um, and I just think, wow, you're missing the opportunity to see all of this yeah. sort of stuff in advance. Yeah, of course, an oil leak that's going to um, look even more impressive when you've you've got a dirty bike, but you're not seeing the stuff that's going on underneath that surface of 
of Marquay and yeah, mm-hmm. cracks and so on, they hide. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, that's that's called, called, basically it's yeah. called lazy. Yeah, it was, you know, wash your bike. When you wash your bike, you're looking at it and uh, you should be able to pick up mm-hmm. these things. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, we all stand and we look at our motorcycles when we have a stop and we sort of gaze adoringly at them, quite rightly. Um, I I just think that we should just all get in the habit of gazing a little bit more intently Mm -hmm. when we've stopped for that backside rest and so on, because even during the day. But one of the things Berger and I always used to do is we'd roll into a camping site, we'd get the kettle on while that water was boiling, then the search would would start. And then during the first cup of tea. Um, then we would be carrying on and checking everything else and just became an automatic routine to do. It wasn't a drag, wasn't a pain in the backside. Um, it was just natural, automatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good routine. All of that, those are really great points. I just want to say that I've been watching the screen here. Michelle's disappeared from their screen here. Do you realize that? Yep. She says, signing off, taking shelter. We'll sign in when I can. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she, she, she'd be in the basement too, so she mightn't be able to get a signal out, Jim. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully she checks back in quickly. Mm. Oh, ah, okay. So, um, I mean, any, anything else with the bike we should talk about? One of the things that I think is probably worth, you know, we live in a, in a, a world of accessories. I think it's worth having a, a check with somebody to find out how many accessories you can actually use on your bike before you start causing yourself problems. Yeah, overloading the electricals, yeah. you mean. hmm Yeah. Even doing the repairs on your, or not repairs, modifications on your bike. First of all, my, my thought process is if you're going to do the modifications, if you're capable, you should do them yourself because then you understand what's been done, where the wire has been routed, where the hose has been changed, et cetera, et cetera. So if something does happen, you think, oh, I think I know what this is. You know what I mean? I remember running the wire and I was wondering about that. Those yep. type of thought processes, but a lot of problems that arise are from modifications that we make. These mods yes. that we do that we think are improving things, you know, when a manufacturer makes a bike, as, as we all know, there's a lot of engineering goes into this, a lot of planning, a lot of testing to make sure, and right down to the cable routing, the wire routing, things like that. When you start to modify those things, then you've, you're going to get into areas where you don't have the, the technology, you don't have the research into what you're doing to know that you're doing it in a way that it's not going to cause a problem down the road. And I think that's why it happens. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll I'll give you a mea culpa here, Jim. On our first trip, I decided that, uh, yeah, we're going to travel through countries where the fuel is going to be pretty ordinary. And my 1150 GS has an internal fuel filter. So I thought, oh yeah, okay. It might be a good idea to take a spare fuel filter and mount the fuel filter on the outside. So did all that. Um, and it, it, uh, it raised up when Michelle was talking about her um, uh, radiator line or, or um, water line um, uh, getting a little hole in it. When I rerouted the uh, fuel filter on the outside of the tank and I've mounted the wires, uh, the, the, the fuel hoses correctly and all that sort of stuff, but they're exposed to... UV light. So um, here we are, we're trucking along through, I think it was Iran or Pakistan, some might have been back box of Pakistan, and I'm losing fuel. And I look down and there's fuel spurting out of the high-pressure fuel line. So, yeah, I carried a bit of uh, spare fuel line. I was able to fix it and all that sort of stuff. But um, think about that. That was a, a fix that I made thinking I was doing the right thing when in actual fact it probably didn't. Um, go in my favour, and any exposed um, rubber uh, line like that 
um, is is susceptible to damage and it's also susceptible to UV light, which is the problem I had. But, you know, it was an easy fix, but still it was uh, my fault and something I thought I'd, I'd um, uh, been able to uh, mitigate by putting the, the fuel filter on the outside went wrong. And the thing is, you you did the mod, so you and, and you understand mechanical, so you could fix it yourself. But imagine if you paid somebody else to do that, and then you're stuck on the side of the road with something that you never would have had trouble with otherwise. Yeah, that'd that's be frustrating. frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about Sam's comment about the wiring diagram too. Very, I mean, a lot of people. Is there anybody out there that doesn't add some electrical gadget to their bike? get some wires going and plug the, yeah. some stuff in and they've got some wiring changes. Do they add it to their wiring diagram so they can find it later? No. Oh, that's a good point. No, you just end up looking yeah. at wires thinking, what did I do here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I've just been doing a whole bunch of wiring changes on my DRZ 400, um, put a rally fairing on it and massive wiring changes. And I've got whole wiring diagrams spread all over my desk with all the changes I've made connections and color coding it's a massive job on that but adding in a charging port or something like that's not a big deal and it's really easy to add it to your wiring diagram and then laminate it so you got it no that's a that's a really good point i i just took a bunch of wiring off of my bike and some of it i'm looking at thinking what was i doing here what was what was this for (laughs) but uh it just happens from doing multiple things right add it to your wiring diagram it'll save you a lot of grief five years down the road when you have no clue what you did or where you put it no that's a very good point anything else with the with the bike i mean i wanted i think the bike was the the real big one in this yeah well there's so many things that you can do to the bike changes, modifications, improvements. Um, a lot of modifications are because everybody says that you should have this, but I think we need to really think hard. As you said, there's a lot of engineering gone in there. Why is this change being made? Why does everybody say you need this? And think about it. Do you really need it or is it just popular? And um, one change that comes to mind that's a source of a lot of contention and really frustrates me is handlebar risers. Everybody puts handlebar risers on, but not everybody needs them. If you're six foot four, you need handlebar risers probably. If you're five foot ten, you don't need handlebar risers. The I bought this DRZ 400 off a guy who was shorter than me by quite a bit, and it had risers on it. And one of the first things I did was take the risers off. We had two and a half inch risers on it. Give me a break. And I've got one inch risers on there now, which for me at six feet is just about right. Uh, do you need risers or is it just a popular thing because it's the in thing? I don't know. Well, you have to rethink about these modifications and changes. And try it. Yeah, try it both ways. Yeah, yeah good see what happens. Because, yeah. I mean, you find all of the blurb saying this is a great thing and it'd be fantastic and enhance your riding, et cetera, et cetera. I spent years riding without handlebar risers mm-hmm. and borrowed some from a friend, put them on and I thought, Jeepers, Sam, you really are an idiot. Why didn't you do this years ago? (laughs) Yeah, well, try both. That's one of those mods that not only changes the way the bike handles and the way the bike feels, but it also changes other things like that people often don't think of, like your cables. For instance, your cables now need to be longer. And if they're not longer, I mean, you could end up having the throttle turn up when you're going to a hard lock or run into pinched cables or pinched wires. So that there's a lot of th- a lot of thought process has to be put into a handlebar riser. 
Yeah, it's not as simple as it looks. No. And most of the reason that people put handlebar risers on is A, because everybody says you need handlebar risers, and B, because when they're riding off-road, they stand up absolutely bolt upright with their knees locked and expect to be able to reach handlebars and be comfortable. Um, No, you're not supposed to ride like that. You're supposed to ride with your knees bent, your back bent a little bit. Um, Anyway, it's, it's a whole ergonomics thing, which actually brings up another subject of discussion. Does the bike fit you? And do you know mm-hmm. how it's supposed to fit you? Do you know what's mm-hmm. a good fit and what's not a good fit? I had a guy come to one of my ergonomics classes in British Columbia here um, on a new Ducati Multistrada. And the gear lever from 10 feet away, I could see that it was mounted at least two inches too low. Too low. If you can imagine two inches too low, 50 millimeters too low. And he said, well, but that's, that's the way it came from the dealer. That's, that's got to be correct. No, it's not. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. got to fit yeah. you. I mean, he was a fairly tall guy, but there's no way that he needed a gear lever that low. Um, gear lever should usually generally be roughly at the same height as the foot peg, and that'll do as a kind of a general place to start. But talk to somebody who understands ergonomics, look it up online, figure out how things are. There's a number of YouTube videos on ergonomics and making the bike fit you. Uh, get it to fit you because it can make a massive difference in how comfortable the it, bike is. That's actually that's actually oh, pretty yeah, dangerous. Actually, actually, Grant, that's pretty dangerous. We had a mate who oh, yeah. um, who uh, actually ended up with a uh, broken toes because you know he hang, hanging his foot down too low all the time, and a stick yep. came up. I know a guy who broke his hit, leg. Yeah, that's right. He hit the boot. Oh. You know, even even through a motorcycle boot, he broke two toes. You know? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. We had a guy at our hum event in Spain once who had a bad habit of riding with his toes pointing out. Well, he caught a, caught a stump at the side of the road, yeah. spiral yeah. fracture of the lower leg. Yeah. Messy. Oh. Messy. Can't messy. you just give me a cringe? Yeah. Ouch. Well, because he rides with his toes out. No, you don't do that. You don't ride with your toes out. Keep your toes tucked in. <laughs> so, well, I, I think we we probably covered the the bike pretty well. I want to talk about some other things, the other things that we like, as, as far as becoming a, a self-reliant traveler, what are the things that you can you do? And do you guys think that that makes you self-reliant, less dependent upon those that you come across? Start thinking about um, the things that can go wrong um, and, you know, start paying attention to those sorts of things. And like I said before, it's not a negative thing to do. And an example of this is when Birgit and I started ride, to ride together, we loaded our bikes in such a way that, well, A, if either of us got teed off with each other so badly that we couldn't bear to ride on together, then we were just free to go. Our bikes were individually set up to split. But the side aspect of that was that if something went wrong, an accident or a major theft or something like that, at least one unit would be properly set up to travel. And I see lots of people who split the, the luggage so one will carry all of the camping gear and the other one will carry the mechanical gear and so on. And yeah, it sort of breeds a few problems, doesn't it? Yeah. I remember a story of a couple who were held up at a border momentarily and um, they waved her through. So she mm-hmm. went through and kept looking behind. No sign of him. No sign of him. Where, do, where is he? Finally, she pulled off down a side road. And uh, sorry, as she turned around slowly in this narrow side road, she saw her husband go flying by looking for her. It mm-hmm. took him two days to catch him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that comes under Sam's thing of what can go wrong. So if you get separated, I think we talked about this, Sam, before with you and Birgit, actually. Mm-hmm. But if you get separated, 
how do you find one another? What's your method? What's, yeah. your, what's your plan? You know, uh, of doing those sorts of things. Yeah. Like we did that, um, that series on Jeremy Craker and Al West when they did their, their down South trip. And they, they did that as well. They, they packed themselves. So they were independent had they got separated. And I think they did get separated uh, once or twice, um, if not more, but um, they were, they were independent. They, they could camp on their own. They could do everything on their own. They were prepared to go it alone. So um, definitely, uh, I think it's a really good point, Sam. And, uh, and when you said, think about what can go wrong. And I like that you said, it's not negative. It's not at all. That's called planning. Yeah, mm-hmm. Preparation so that there is no stress, which makes life a lot more fun because you're not stressed out because you're not worried about things going wrong because you figured out a solution to the possible problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right, Grant. I want to have learned enough so as to be able to reduce the risks. And if I do that, then I'm not exhausting myself with what if worries, mm-hmm. with things that could go wrong through a, sh- a level of sheer ignorance that wasn't necessary. What I want to do is to be mentally and physically ready to deal with the unexpected, all the things that I'm not so skillful with. And and shoving those what ifs or you know putting them in perspective just makes such a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to comment on the uh, getting separated. Intercom makes a big difference if you're riding two bikes, being able to connect with each other at a reasonable range. It just makes life so much easier. And um, well, even if you're riding two up on one bike, I we think that an intercom is absolutely a requirement. It makes just everything so much easier. Mm-hmm. Oh, it really does. I mean, if you're not using intercom, and I do know quite a lot of people who are going around the world not using intercom on purpose because they want to have the time to themselves as they're riding, as they're, you know, they're living month after month, 24 hours a day together. They want to have that time together. So intercom gets in the way. But I mean, I just love being able to do it and always turn it off. But you can, you can always say, all right, so we're going to Bariloche. We'll meet up at the police station and Bariloche. Everybody will know where the police station is. So sooner or later, you can just get there and go and stand and wait if you get separated. So it, it's that little stuff as a plan B that takes away the sting of things, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your, well, your standard can be, what's the main police station? Go to the main police station. Yep. In the yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's, that's, yeah. that's I mean. the basic. Yeah. Or your last hotel. Yeah. I've done it on grip rides where, um, okay, um, at the start of the day, Okay, we're going to stop here for morning tea. We're going to stop here for lunch, and we'll stop here for afternoon tea. And this is where we'll be tonight. So if you get separated, uh, well, I'll see you either either of those places. And if you get in in trouble, ring us. Whatever. Uh, that's pretty simple. You don't really need communication. Um, but I, I'm 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 with you, Grant. I like having uh, communication, particularly with the P and passenger. Not so much phones and access and all that sort of stuff as you're riding, I don't like that too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, we I found that uh, just to, since we're on that subject, Susan's a big fan of having her own GPS on the back so that she can see where we are, where we're going, what the plan is, and make adjustments to the plan for whatever reason that comes up. And she's ready to go and figure that out. Um, while I'm just looking at the GPS that I've got, which tells me what's the road situation ahead so I can understand what she's talking about when she says, take the third exit from the next roundabout. I say, oh, yeah, okay, right, I see that, and that makes sense to me. Uh, it's a nice system. It, it works so well. You would not believe it. We've been using it for years and years and years, and it just makes everything easier. But the other cool thing about it in a lot of the world, like riding around in North America or Europe or Australia, for instance, she can be sitting on the back looking at where we are, 
okay, I know where we are. I can, oh, I can see the next town. Yeah, that looks about a right distance. And yeah, I think we'll stay there. Now, what is there in the way of hotels? Punch, 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 hotel. Yeah, that looks good. Phone them from sitting on the back as we're riding along and make a booking wow. on the phone as we're riding. That's pretty cool. Does that sound like a pretty cool thing? Yeah, it is. That's today's technology. It's incredible. Today's isn't it? technology is amazing. Yeah. I mean, we do that on a regular basis now. Surely, well, I, I, I want to bring you in here with, um, I was thinking paperwork. What, what sort of things, like, because I think you handle a lot of the paperwork for you guys doing yeah. your trips. Yeah. And what, are the, what sort of things with that should we be doing to be self-reliant? Um, I think you need to know the rules and regulations of where you're going. Um, if you're, mm. say you're overseas, you're right out of your comfort zone, to make sure you know what the visa requirements are for the next half a dozen countries. If you're in South America, have a, an idea of where you're going to go and know what the visa requirements are for all of those countries for your country. Don't talk to a traveller on the road who says to you, nah, you just turn up at the border. No, not a problem. You just go straight through. That could be on a US passport, but on an Australian passport, you might need a visa. Or, or, yeah, yeah, Panama. We went into Panama and had to have a – we flew in because our bike was going separately and we had to have a ticket out or they wouldn't let us on the plane and we only had a one-way ticket because we thought we're going to ride out of Panama. And I had no idea that that was a regulation. And in the end, we had to buy the most expensive airline ticket known to man so we could get a um, a, re, a, re, a ticket out of Panama and then get a refund for it when we were in Panama City. Uh, and that was because of a lack of um, a lack of planning. So you need to know those sorts of things. You need to know the health requirements of where you're going. That's a really important thing. Don't turn up at the border and go, oh, I didn't know I had to have yellow fever because they'll offer to give you a yellow fever vaccination and that's not where I want to get my vaccinations from, just saying. <laughs> yeah, um, no thank you. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 just, um, it, it's kind of common sense to know how you're going to get into the country and what sort of things you're going to face when you're there and, and try and keep an eye on what the, um, the current political situation is in some countries. Otherwise, you could find yourself mm. blundering into the middle. I know, Grant, um, you've talked about not blundering, but ending up in the middle of crisis situations in, uh, I think it was in the Balkans, wasn't it? But, you know, you just, in this day and age, so many so many areas, if you don't do a lot of um, preparation before you go, you could, what the general news is saying, just nothing about this country when you drill down into it they may have maybe having very serious civil unrest and there's a story in the paper here today that an Ecuadorian television station's been stormed by um, bandits brandishing guns well like me who would have thought that Ecuador was a place in crisis but obviously there's a lot going on yeah. there so if you're heading there you should check it out just to make sure it's not dangerous because if, it, if you put yourself into a dangerous situation it's not just you that's going to be in trouble. As we've said before, it's the people who are going to ha have to come and get you. And don't think just because you're an idiot, your government is going to help you. Yeah, if you're not supposed to be in there. Correct. I mean, they'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll do their best, but there's a lot of things that they can't, can't do if um, you have idiot emblazoned on your forehead. Yep. That's a start, Jim. I mean, you can talk for a week on paperwork, yeah. but, but the basic border crossings and health. 
No, definitely. But it's, but I think you made some really good points there. And that, and that gives a, a good uh, overview, I guess, of what we're trying to illustrate here. Is there anything else, any other topic that anyone had? That- I wanted to add something to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's all very well to do all this preparation in advance and find out what the regulations are entering the border and what kind of visa you need, et cetera. But always remember, first off, that when you arrive at the border, the border may or may not have any clue what the embassy told you is the requirements, and they may do things completely different. So you can argue about it, but it's not going to do you any good because the guy standing in front of you is the one that has all the power. So you have to basically bow down and say, okay, yes, and go along with what they want, not what the uh, the government wants. Correct. I'm reminded of a couple of guys that went through, I think it was Chad, and they said, uh, they were asked for a uh, a fee, ten dollars, to go through the border, and they said, "No, no, 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 no. Our embassy sa- uh, says that uh, there is no fee required to cross this border." Well, they sat there for two days arguing about it for ten dollars. So you can choose to do that, or you can say, "Okay, that's what it's going to cost me, and that's what the fee is, and just go along with it." <laughs> it that, that fee would not be a, a legal fee. It would have been something that that guy needed for his family. Um, just a little bit yeah. of um, border corruption, which, and for 10 bucks, seriously, you want to spend two days at a border camp because for $10, that is just absurd. <laughs> yes. And there's another one, there's another one too that um, crossed my mind was um, know the um, petrol prices for, for tourists. I, we had some friends who were traveling, yeah. I think it was Bolivia, where the fuel is absolutely very cheap for locals. But it's double the price for anyone mm-hmm. for anyone uh, a tourist and things like that, and there's a reason for that because the locals are so poor. But um, the guy that I'm thinking of, he would actually argue that the petrol price is what he was paying and no more, and he'd be getting into fights with people um, at service stations. And when you read the requirements, and I'm pretty sure it was Bolivia. Um, you know, it, it, it it's, it's quite it's quite normal for uh, people to be charged double because you're a tourist. Yep. Well, hey, I think there's some interesting. Let me interrupt here just for a second because Michelle's back. Michelle, Hello, is everything Michelle, okay? Safe. <laughs> everything. Hi, guys. Yep, all good and all safe. Just the uh, warning came through and said to take shelter, so I I signed off and went and took shelter until it cleared. And so, yep, I'm back. Sorry about that. Absolutely good. It's passed. It passed. And- it passed over. There's tornado watches on until 10 p.m. tonight, so it's it's an all-day right. thing. But this particular band of storms passed over, and apparently there was a tornado spotted like four miles from here. So, Ooh. yeah, close. That's and close. one thing with those phone alerts, they're those nasty, really loud phone alerts that, that, that really <laughs> yeah. scare you when you get them. You know something's really bad happening. Well, but there's and never... my phone was off, or at least I thought it was. It was in airplane mode, but those come through apparently in yeah, airplane mode. Yeah, they come through they no do. matter what. You can't block yeah. them. And yeah. I, I guess it's, you know, obviously for that it's reason right there, which you want it to do, right? But there's never right. one that comes on afterwards. It's a nice, soft, like good feeling <laughs> saying, it's okay now. Right. Everything's back. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully I'm here to do that for. It's yeah, all it's great. all good now. We're we're safe. So yeah. Cool. Oh, Michelle, you just slipped into calm, cheerful, relaxed tones. <laughs> <laughs> I have to very quickly <laughs> for my own peace of mind, if nothing else. Yep. But I, I happened to catch the last part of what Brian was talking about. And when I was in Bolivia, it was triple the price of what locals paid. So you're you're absolutely right. It was Bolivia. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's it yeah, is. They, they, somehow or other, the government has to is subsidizing the locals, and the tourists are paying the subsidy. That's the tourist tax. It's yep, like when yep. you go into a game park in Tanzania. I forget what the number was, but it, if, if I remember rightly, it was something like the locals could get in for like twenty dollars, and for a tourist, it was a hundred dollars. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the way it is. Face it, don't fight it. It's the way it is, and you are supporting the local economy with your money. And if you can afford to be there, then you can afford to pay the fee or don't go in. It's the same Mm -hmm. in India, so it gives the locals an opportunity to visit some of their heritage sites without having to pay um, the the going rate for tourists. Seven rupees for the local and 25 for a visitor. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in favour of it. Yeah. Yep. Yep, makes sense to me. Yep. I mean, there are going, adding on to what um, Shirley just said, you know, there are some countries where you have to have a permit to buy petrol. Yeah. So it's kind of useful to find that out in advance if you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Rather than showing up and trying to get somebody to give you fuel or just become a burden, really. Yep. yep. Any, other, any other topics that you guys want to discuss on this? Um, it kind of covers the basic topic for, from my side. I'm just going to talk about first aid kits, but, you know, there's first aid kits and first aid kits, you know. You can have everything from a, a splint for a broken leg, but, gee, you know, um, uh, that takes up a hell of a lot of room. Chances are if you'd have a, if you've had an accident and your leg's broken, you're not going to be able to put a splint on it anyway. Uh-huh. Just <laughs> That's a rough guess. That's really good. <laughs> That's a good point. I'm and just very, splinting my carry, leg. <laughs> exactly. Just leave, leave five minutes, please. Um, I mean, I carried a decent fire um, first aid kit. It was huge, and it was one of the reasons why I was totally overloaded. But I, I didn't. I wanted to be self-sufficient. I didn't want to have to to beg first aid stuff in developing world countries and so on. But the trouble was. When I did have an accident, I was unconscious, wasn't I? And it was buried in the bus from my bike. And so what, who's going to get at it? Well, apparently? that's because you do yeah. things in a big way, Sam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not supposed to be at the bottom of the bike. It's supposed to be one near the top. I am sure that when I went over those handlebars, I was incredibly elegant. And I'm sure there was this wonderful Hollywood moment crunch when I hit the deck. No I'd do things properly, you know. Flying W's. Um, just with first aid kits, it's well worth splitting your first aid kit, isn't it? You know, the, the stuff that for the more unusual things, then yeah, put those in your box and in your pannier and down, tuck down low. But keep the easy stuff, you know, some, some Band-Aids, a bandage, some um, antiseptic wipes and things like that where it's really easy to get at because that can be such a saver. And, and while we're speaking of all things medical, if you take medication and you need to take three months worth while you're traveling, you need to make sure you have a letter from your doctor that explains mm-hmm. what the medication's for and why you have so much of it. Because if you get searched at some borders, mm-hmm. they're particularly um, concerned about uh, medication of any kind coming into their country. And the other thing that's handy is if you're going somewhere um, where they where English may not be such a um, be prominent at the border, get that letter translated. We had ours. Yeah. We had our medication letters translated into Russian and Greek, I think. But anyway, we got it. We got them translated into a couple of um, country languages. In, where we thought we might hit a remote border, where if they looked at our letter, they, it would mean nothing to them. Mm. Yep. 
absolutely sound advice. Um, it's really important. And it's as is knowing which countries you can take um, drugs that are based on opiates into and which ones you absolutely can't and yeah. you're likely to get yourself thrown in jail if they see you carrying opiates. Yeah. Um, it's basic stuff like that, isn't it? And when you're carrying um, tablets, carry them in two places. Yeah. Um, I was talking to a guy a couple of months back and he was carrying all of his medications in one of his bags on the back of his bike and he didn't strap it on properly. Um, turned around at the end of the day, he, he just, he's one of these guys who just rides and rides and rides and he didn't know it was gone. He never found that and his tablets were all in that one bag. Yeah, no, that's mm. very, very good advice. I've heard of people putting them in tires and in, in seats, even in, in gas tanks. Maybe that's for something different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bad influence. Yes. The, the one other thing I wanted to talk about was um, insurance, oh, <laughs> because God. it's one of those things that you you are going to do to make sure. I know, to, and I know we've talked about this before. The, I just want to talk about this aspect. If insurance was ridiculously expensive to the point where it's it's just unaffordable, would you guys say travel and and take your risk? Or not? Well, would you would you say that it's foolish if somebody decided to travel and take the risk, or would you say that they should just stay home? That's a uh, personal look, choice to make. It is a personal choice, and there's one thing, and other people are probably going to berate me for this, but we've had a spate in Australia recently of tourists who've gone overseas. They haven't been fully, either fully insured or fully aware of the restrictions on their insurance. And they have ended uh, ended up in terrible positions in hospital, really, really unwell. And it's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars to medical evac them back to Australia. So they set up GoFundMe pages and get everyone else to put in money to bring them home. I, I get that people want to help, and I think that's a really wonderful thing that we have that compassion. And maybe I can be a hard old bitch when I am, but seriously, you've got to prepare yourself. To, that if something like that happens, that you can get yourself out of that dis- difficult situation. If you don't have medical evacuation insurance or if you're going somewhere and part of the insurance is don't ride a, a, a scooter, make sure you have insurance that says you can ride a scooter and don't get drunk when you're going to do it because mm-hmm. chances are any insurance policy, be it in your home country or overseas, is going to be negated if you're full of grog. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, that was. I I think you're what you're saying. No, I I totally agree with you, Shirley. I think it's the responsible thing to do, and you have to understand that. I mean, think of it not just as the standpoint of setting up a GoFundMe page and people coming to your um, defense and and support and trying to get raise funds to get you home, but if that falls short or if that isn't an option or what have you, you're going to have family members who are going to bear that burden if you don't have coverage. And so think of what you're doing to your loved ones if you don't have the appropriate coverage to get yourself home. I I just really feel like that comes back to that topic of being self-reliant. And I think it's the right thing to do when you respect your loved ones and other travelers and the places that you're traveling to, to not leave the burden of whatever that risk is on some underdeveloped country or on a bunch of strangers that are coming to your support or on your family members to come to your rescue. It is the responsible way to travel. And I think, you know, going back to all of those insurance variables for what it's worth, I mean, I I think you can get some level of coverage for something. Even, you know, maybe you don't have, you know, full medical coverage or you have medical coverage with an extremely high deductible. But I mean, if you have a $10,000 deductible 
at for in terms of like a USA health insurance policy, that's better than not having any insurance at all. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. find something that fits within your budget. So it may not be what you had in mind, maybe a bare bones emergency type insurance policy, but it's something. When you mm-hmm. say deductible, Michelle, is that like the excess that you have to pay if you make a claim? You pay the first 10,000. Um, so yeah. yeah, you pay the first 10. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's very, that sounds like very good sense. Because then you may, if you don't need yeah, it, totally it doesn't matter. But if you do need it and you've got that 10 right. grand, you're out of trouble. It kind of makes you wonder why they don't do that to begin with. I mean, that that to me would be a very popular policy that I think uh, probably many people would like to you know, take advantage of. Well, when you fill in the application form for an insurance policy, um, everyone that I've been looking at in recent years, they give you the option. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you and they give give you a, a series of levels so you can tick. Yeah, okay, I'll pay the first 10 grand. Um, yeah. Or, you know, I'll, I, I only want $100, um, you know, deductible. Um, and most of the application forms you fill in now, uh, you can fill in with what sort of cover you actually want. And do you want to have belongings in there as well as medical cover and all that sort of stuff? And you can dramatically reduce how much you are paying by being selective with, with what you're covering. Um, mm. you know, one of the ones that I looked at recently was, well, do I really want to have my laptop covered? It's going to cost me how much to do that? Yeah. Okay. Not worth it. Maybe I need to think twice about this. Well, your laptop's from the 70s too. So, I mean, it can't be that expensive to replace. Jim, you you promised me that when I said I'd be on this show that you would not give away my secrets. (laughs) I know that's the newer one you've got now in the late 70s, but still. (laughs) Let's put it this way. My hamster wheel has to be smaller on my most recent one. (laughs) And a very good friend gave me his. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Well, I, I think we've come to the time where we should probably get into plugs now so Brian can ride oh. his motorcycle. Did you have something more? <laughs> Jim, we haven't talked about the the, um, bodge. the bodge repairs and yeah. so on that people, we, we've come across. Well, I thought we, this, we sort of did with that, but we could really. de- definitely cover that. <laughs> Our practical examples of, of the sorts of things that were some lateral thinking um, and some basic equipment that you can do. I just think this, this talking about this gets people thinking. In other words, it's not a case of I can't, but it's a case of, well, actually, perhaps I could. Okay, wow. okay. And, you, know, you don't have to sell me on it, Sam. All right, I will go for it. You want to go for this? Yes, let's go for this. Okay. So we're sort of jumping back in a way, really, here. It's what we we're, we're going to jump yes. back to what we talked about. This this gets more into the mechanical thing. Surely you, you just go to sleep here at this point. Uh, I thought uh, I might just go and do something else, and Brian will give me a hoy when you get back to drugs, so I can tell you I don't have any, okay? Because I know you're just not into because I, I, I remember what you said about the, what you knew about the bike, that the tire was round and black and yeah, I think you would mention it rotating. If it's got fuel in it and it goes, that's fine. If it's got fuel in it and it stops, it's broken. That's my extent Bingo, there of you knowledge go. There. But I don't want you to I don't want you to walk away and fall asleep. Okay. I want you to stay here. So <laughs> if you if you can. <laughs> but so pod because you're probably gonna have something here surely. But anyway, bod repairs. Okay. So let's jump back and talk about uh the the, the little bit the bit that we didn't cover here when we we're talking about uh, motorcycle prepared as mechanical abilities, I guess. We were talking about um, bodge repairs or, or um, MacGyvering things. And we were looking for um, stories of some, some kind of wild stories that maybe you've done that kind of illustrates what can be done with things that are rather unorthodox in that purpose. Who has one of those? 
I've got plenty. I've got a whole yeah, list. Got yeah, I've got a list. <laughs> I've got a lot. You do it. This is, okay, well, let's look at the best ones. You know, like when you when you skinned the fish and you sewed the fish into the tread of the motorcycle for the <laughs> chunk that was missing, those are the ones that we're after. It's just really funny you should say that, Jim, because fish skin is incredibly tough when it dries. Oh, it's shark skin. And you and you put on, it's a, it's a directional tire, not good for braking, but good for acceleration. There you go. Oh, without doubt. Absolutely. And it looks cool. <laughs> well, I remember my first bodge on a motorcycle. I lost the master link on my chain. I was 16 years old, didn't have a clue. Master link fell off and I'm in the middle of nowhere and chains lying on the ground. Figured out that it was missing something that was trying to connect these two links. So I went over to the local fence and worked and bent and bent and wired back and forth. You know how you do it to break something, heat it up and eventually it fails. And I used that piece of wire to link the chain together. I figured, ah, oh, that's cool. This is going to be great. And put a couple of loops through and it was dandy, twisted it together. And I discovered that it, that will that will work for about 100 yards. And then it lay on the ground again. <laughs> about three or four times later, I figured out that this is just not going to work. That's when I learned to carry spare master links and to lock wire the clip. There's a tip for you. But that's good, though, what you were thinking, though, isn't it, though? I mean, that's yeah. the type of thought process. That's exactly what we're talking about. But it was it's it's kind of a thinking outside the box, I think, is the important thing. I mean, a lot of people, and I'll tell a story, a lot of people think, well, you've got to have the right part and it's got to be fixed properly and nothing else will do. Well, no, not necessarily. Just about anything will do as long as it works. And there's lots of things you can do. Our Max uh, guy I rode with in South America, his top box literally broke the mount and flew over his head and landed on the road in front of him. This was a very bumpy road, let me tell you. And he was freaked out and figured, well, we, we've got to go back to whatever the main, the main city of the country we're in. I can't remember which one it was. Anyway, we said, I said, no, I think well, let's just, just see what we find in the next little tiny town. It was a little town. We wandered around and I saw this little workshop, which was basically a garage with a door open and there was tools and stuff lying around. Ah, this looks like the place. So we pulled in and the guy looked at the uh, part, this broken plastic latch for the GV saddlebag or top box. And we talked back and forth, ended up making a piece out of Spanish, out of Spanish, <laughs> We ended up making a part out of some steel that he had and took two of them with a lot of work and some direction from me and made a part in about, I think it took him about three hours. The wife brought down sandwiches to feed us all. It was really very, very nice people, very friendly. And it was better than new. It was fantastic. And he said very, very hesitantly at the end, you know, $20 and $20. And Max started to bargain with him. Uh, I just wow. about smacked him up the side of the head. <laughs> Max, pay the man. $20. I mean, come on. These guys have spent like three hours. They brought us lunch. The whole works. How can you go wrong for 20 bucks? So, yeah, um, you don't have to get the right part. I'm sure that part is still on that bike and it's still working perfectly. It's better than factory. So, just a lot amazing what you can do if you're willing to open your mind up. Following on from that, Grant, I've got a lovely one that just slots in um, just perfectly. So a guy I know was heading down into Baja and he was going, he was, he was just going to ride the length of Baja. He'd 
you've done it before and spent sort of six weeks there cruising around and exploring. Loved it, just wanted to ride it again. Um, but he was aiming for a fiesta in mainland Mexico. And just as he's riding through um, Southern California, heading for the border, he realizes that one of his fork gaiters is really badly split. So he calls into local motorcycle dealerships and none of them have got anything that will fit. Um, gets on the phone and oh, it's going to take two weeks. Oh, if I wait for two weeks for a gator to turn up, then I'm going to miss um, the Fiesta and I've, I've wanted to go to this for ages. So he went to the local surf shop and he asked them if they'd got any trashed wetsuits. He used the arms of the wetsuits that they had to make his own gaiters. Perfect. Just lovely, isn't it? And he and he he kept those on the bike all the way down through South America because he said, "Well, why not? They work, and they're a great talking point too." <laughs> That's clever. Yeah, I saw one recently. Uh, um, a guy broke his gear lever. the The part that bolts onto the uh, shaft was still there, so he took a ten millimeter wrench, box end wrench, put it on the on the bolt, and then mm-hmm. wired it on. And yep, wrench made a perfectly good gear lever. Yeah. 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 No, I've seen that too. That works really, really nicely, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I've seen that. Yeah. I think always remember that people in, in many, many places around the world are very, very used to making do. And they're really good at figuring out some sort of a fix. So don't be afraid to go into a local workshop like we did with Max and say, just point and they'll figure out that there's a problem here. And sure as fate, they'll run off and come back with something and they'll make it work. I've heard stories about Grunting. making sprockets in, in Russia and all kinds of stuff. It's amazing what can be done. You're, oh, yeah. You're giving me a lovely lead in again to another <laughs> one. Um, a guy I met in Pakistan, um, his shock was getting really soft and it was a shock. You know, none of the gas cylinders on the side or anything else like that. Um, so he got some truck tire and cut two washers um, with his Swiss army knife. And then some street side guys, you know, just working on the main road who worked on trucks and the things like that. They um, they took the shock to pieces for him, slotted um, these um, homemade washers in. And they must have been, what, about gosh, maybe five centimeters of, of washers that, that, that they inserted um, just so that he could get some tension back in his shock. And the last I heard from him, he was in Bangkok and he'd ordered a new shock and it was going to meet up with him there. But they got him, that had got him all the way from Pakistan to Thailand. Yeah. I've seen people take the original, leave the original shock on, but then take another shock just off, off a car. It's a shock. It does the damping part and hook it up with a bunch of bracketry or whatever. And you've got a shock. That's all that matters. The spring on your original yep. shock does the work, but the shock part is this car shock. Damn, yeah, fine. Yeah. It works. Come on, Brian, what have you seen? Uh, well, uh, I have a mate who's got an old classic uh, 650 BMW, and he went for a ride with some mates, um, and the muffler fell off. And uh, the muffler is, you know, pretty hard to find with these old things, so he's put it back on, and uh, – then he's got a stick on the side of the road and gaffer taped the stick to the muffler and to the bike. So he actually held, the, held his muffler on with the stick and that got him home. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the old uh, flat tyre and your tubes absolutely stuffed and how do you get out of trouble with that? Uh, get some grass, stuff the grass inside the, uh, the casing of the tyre, it'll get you out of trouble. Seen that done. Um, rear brake, uh, rear disc brake, um, just worn out to nothing. It was a guy we came across in Pakistan that, you know, it was, it was metal on metal. 
so he pulled the disc uh, pads out of the rear brake and found a guy who would then um, stick cowhide leather on the old um, disc pads and put that back in. So he had some sort of nice. retardation, but it wasn't metal on metal. Uh, that got him out of trouble. You can also to- take those brake. Yeah, go on. There's a lot of places that uh, will take those brake pads and they can actually bond perfectly good brake material, you know, usually yeah. off the drum brakes, but yeah. brake material onto those brake pads and uh, away you go. They're fine. Yeah, that's right. I think he was in, I think, I'm just trying to think where we were, Peshawar or somewhere like that. And there was, there wasn't a lot around, but say, so, yeah, hide that worked. Yeah. Um, that's a good idea. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I've actually used, um, uh, in days gone by when I used to smoke, um, I actually ran out of uh, uh, lights one night in the middle of uh, the mountains and had uh, burnt out, burnt up fuses. So I got the foil out of my cigarette packet and wrapped that around the broken fuse, and that got me going for a while. Anyway, got me out of trouble. So that's going back nice a bit. Plan. Yeah, carry spare yeah. fuses is the uh, secret there. Make sure yeah. you have lots of spares, and I always. Make sure that I've got one that's at least 10 amps higher than my maximum so that just in case, maybe that it's supposed to be a 20, but maybe a 30 will work and not blow. Cross my fingers and maybe I can get out of here. Yeah, that was the old 750 Honda where one fuse did everything. And uh, yeah, I should have known better. Yeah. You know, got me out of trouble. (laughs) So there you go. There's a few. I think everybody should carry condoms and nipples, really. Go ahead. Okay. Anyone else? (laughs) (laughs) Rapidly on. (laughs) I was talking to a guy a few months back and um, he rode a BMW and um, with all of the friction, the spare diaphragms that he was carrying for his carburetors, um, that actually worn through. So anyway, um, he rode on with a condom um, glued into place as a diaphragm. <laughs> nice thought, hey? Yeah. I don't and, know if it's a nice um, thought, but I mean, it sounds it like works. it works. <laughs> if I keep carving some of my 350 Honda and playing up, I might try that, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a mate, Steve, um, he, he came off. We were riding off-road and he, he took a really hard fall and his fairing was just in bits. Um but we had a camping stove with us. Um, one of the guys had um, a six-inch nail um, in his in his MacGyver box, and um, we just heated that nail up, um, drilled holes with it or burned holes in the in the fairing, and used cable ties to stitch it all yeah. together again. And that was kind of important because a lot of that fairing was supporting the lights and the and the blinkers and all of that sort of stuff. So that was a really satisfying one to do. Yeah, yeah I used, had the same thing. My uh, windshield broke in Ecuador, I think it was, and some drunk decided he was going to get on the bike in the middle of the night and fell over and smacked up against a wall and split the fair, the windshield screen in half. And I just drilled some small holes just like that, but I used safety wire and little tiny holes and taped it all, or wired it all up, um, used an X in the middle of it all so that the screen wouldn't shift or move or anything that was 1997 it's still there it's still fine the windscreen's fine no, i'm not going to replace it it's I, fine I, I presume you did that when you sobered up 
<laughs> no comment. <laughs> good one, Brian. <laughs> Do you guys know what a gator grip socket is? Gator grip socket. Mm. Yeah, vaguely. Um, it's something that I was shown at a show over here. It's got a whole um, bunch a of pins. That's right. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a socket shape and you can get them in various different shapes. Um, but instead of having the sort of squared off edges that you would put over the top of a bolt, it's full of pins. So when you push this socket onto um, a bolt head um, or a nut, um, it'll grip it really tightly. So one of these will do a, a significant number of different sizes. Now, I started carrying one because as Libby got older and, you know, the bolts and things, they were perfectly reasonable and so on and um, off the beaten track and couldn't get as tough ones and so on. Then I started using this because the beauty of it is it'll really grip hard even onto slightly worn um, bolt or nuts, which um, a standard spanner won't grip. Mm -hmm. It's a great, great bit of kit. So just a gator grip socket. That certainly sounds like a, a neat thing to carry. And, and I gather what you're talking about is your, your, the nuts are worn on yours. So a regular wrench yeah. gets uh, sloppy on it. Yep. One of the ways I just going to mention that made me think of, um, if you ever get one that's stripped, sometimes you, you know, you strip a nut. Um, one mm -hmm. savior for that is um, you take an impact socket in particular, but any socket that'll take it and drive it that's too tight for it and drive it over it with a hammer. And then undo it. You know, if you've ever had, uh, if you ever lost a lock nut, boy, this won't, this won't, this may help some people with uh, criminal minds out there. But in any case, if you ever lost your, um, your lock, uh, you know, the locking nuts they put on cars and you have a little key for it. If you break the key, which is common or lost it, you can drive an impact over that and undo that nut. Mm -hmm. Not to steal yeah. tires, I'm telling you, but, no, but to, good, to good. get no. your lock off. No, that's no. good to know about. Okay. I just popped up into my mind. One of my, Pet peeves, and I've seen a couple of comments or issues about this recently on a couple of forums. Um, and people don't understand, don't know that Japanese motorcycles have what's called JIS screws. They are not Phillips screws. And they try and use a Phillips screw mm -hmm. on them. And then they say that these screws are garbage, they're cheese, and they're they garbage, skip. and they should be replaced, and yada, yada, yada. And there's all kinds of complaints about shoddy Japanese workmanship. It's not the screw. It's using the wrong screwdriver that's the problem. What mm. you want, if you've got a Japanese motorcycle with Phillips screws on it, <clears throat> they're not Phillips screws. First of all, they are GIS screws, is get yourself a GIS screwdriver, a number two and a number three, and you'll have no more problems. It's amazing what the proper screwdriver will do. It's Best bizarre, part, though, because it looks like oh, a, a it, regular, it you know, regular screwdriver where a Japanese uh, industrial system or something like that. Japanese industrial standard, yeah. Standard, that's the, the, the JIS screwdriver, the flanks of the, what do you call it, the, the star, are actually straight, whereas a Phillips, they are designed on an angle. And the reason for that is that in a factory, they can use the Phillips with a power tool, bang, and it'll pop out because it'll, it'll fail because of the taper, and you don't over-tighten the screw at a factory of operation. Mm-hmm. That's before right. they started, in, were invented clutches for that sort of thing. But exactly. yeah, that's where this it is, goes way back to the 30s. Yeah. Um, but so get yourself a couple of GIS screwdrivers. It'll solve all your problems and you'll love it and you'll never go back. Fantastic. And the best part is GIS screwdrivers can be used on Phillips just fine and are better than Phillips. So let's... Um Let's let's leave the bodged repairs then, unless somebody has something really spectacular. I, I never did hear the shark skin one, which was I was really <laughs> looking for. But okay, 
So um, let, let's, I, I just want to see if you guys could just throw out there the items that you think someone should carry if they think they're going to be able to do some sort of bodge or MacGyver repair. And I know we, we often talk about duct tape and, and zip ties. Those are the obvious ones. You hear those a lot. What other than, than duct tape and, and zip ties? Or if you have something to add with those, by all means, because I know there's some variations there. Michelle, sure. let's start with you. Um, just one at a time or go through a few of them? Does it matter? No, go through a few. Throw, throw a few out there. Um, I carry a small length of tubing if I need to siphon the tank out or do anything uh, like that. I think I've mentioned before that I carry a small section of sandpaper um, for, you know, getting surfaces, you know, rubbed clean if need to be, working on uh, maybe a darkened or uh, bad spark plug if I have to try and get it back to life or make do with it. Um, but a couple different uses I found for sandpaper. And I carry actually like a small, it's like an old chapstick tube full of grease um, because grease is something that's usually large, uh, like for packing wheel bearings or doing anything like that. Not that I do any of that level kind of work on my bike, but I have it if somebody else needs it. Mm-hmm. No, and it's handy for other things, like just what we're talking about. You might look yeah. at something one time and go, I know what I can use for this. Yeah, that's right. And um, I carry JB Weld. Mm-hmm. Quick JB Weld. Yeah. Regular JB Welds too. It takes all day. It does. And that's really important when you're looking at JB Weld to, to understand what you're talking about, Grant, there. To understand there's, you know, your quick curing as opposed to your long time curing. Yeah. Long time curing is like 24 hours, whereas quick JB Weld is, is hard in an hour and usable with some reasonable amount of stress in about three. So quite a difference. Mm-hmm. It's incredible stuff, isn't oh, it? Oh, fantastic. Yep. Use it for all kinds of stuff. I carry stainless, since I guess it's my turn now, I'll keep going. I carry stainless steel safety wire, which works much better than Bailey wire or whatever. And it actually continues to work for a long, long time because it doesn't rust. Uh, Very strong. I carry very long and big zip ties. I've got four or five of them in my saddlebag always. Now they're like three-eighths of an inch across and 15, 18 inches long. You can cut them to whatever length you need and they don't take up any space in the bottom. BMW tie straps. The bike, when the bike comes from the factory, they're held down with BMW tie straps and they're usually in a box at the back of the garage in the workshops and um, often dealers will give them to you for free. I carry half a dozen with me on big trips, like on our around the world trip, had half a dozen. Very helpful. Um, Hose clamps, especially if you're water cooled, Mm -hmm. but they're generally useful for all kinds of things. Solves lots of problems. Um, Get good stainless steel ones. Make sure they're not the cheap eight forty nine cent ones at the local five five dollar dollar store, and at least two sizes. So one least, big enough, for example, to hold on an exhaust pipe, but um, a smaller version as well. Yeah, and if you've got uh, several, then you can always hook two or three together if necessary as well. Yep, yep. And then tools, all the basic tools needed for most of the repairs on your bike. You should go through, I think, a full service on your bike and make sure that you've got all the tools needed to do that. Um, I carry lots of tools. I help fix other people's bikes. And I just kind of, I'm okay, I'm, I'm a tool pig. I've got two giant toolboxes plus four or five more boxes down below, kind of full of stuff. But um, if I've got the tool, I can fix it. If I don't have the tool, I definitely can't fix it. So I carry tools. And I think finally, patience. Don't rush. Be sure to always have water, food, 
shade umbrella or a tarp or your bike cover makes a wonderful shade for if you need uh, if you need it um and just if you have to wait for someone to come along shade and water and food makes a big difference i have i i tell you i spent a lot of time well not a lot of time but i mean i look around a lot at stores and stuff i've never seen patients on the shelf no you have to check you again have to for it. that you have to earn it oh is that where you get it uh, I, I'm done with you. I have no patience for this. Sam, Sam what have you got? Yeah, I was just going to add in there things like a small hacksaw blade. In some countries, they're called junior hacksaw blades. Um, you don't need to have the handle or anything else like that. You can make something to to, to deal with that. But being able to cut is, yeah, duct tape works. Um, just being able to cut a, a slot in something or to saw through things. And I've had... Um, come across people who've got rounded off bolts and they're so so badly rounded off um even even my my gator grip socket doesn't doesn't fit on it um so we've ended up cutting a, a split in the top of what is there and then managed to release it with a, a large um screwdriver so that's a that's just one example of why carrying one of those and they they take up no space yep. hardly any weight oh, and a small um, i carry a small triangular file like a six inch triangular file it yep. can take a long time with a little tiny file and especially a fine one, but it's amazing what you can do with that. Yep. It really helps. I, I, I'd like to carry one that's sort of pointed on one side, sort of triangular yep. on one side and curved on the other. Um, and it's amazing what the, the combination of things that that will do. Mm. Um, just a, the sorry, just key, with the files, just a very tiny one you're talking about, right? A six yeah, inch yeah, long. Yep. Yeah. No, that's good. Yep. Just very small and quite fine. It takes you a while to do anything, but it can do it very nicely indeed. Mm -hmm. um, small selection of key nuts and bolts. So, you know, go around your bike and see what are the most popular key, um, you know, nuts and bolts. But um, with the bolts, carry ones that are a little bit longer um, so that you can cut them down to whatever size you actually need. And ideally um, thread it all the way. If you've got ones that are threaded yes. all the way, it may be too yes. long, but you can put a nut on it, screw it in, and then use the nut to tighten at the correct yep. length. Yeah, spot on. Um, mole grips, of course, um, I think they're a, a must. Mole grips are vice grips, by the way. For, yeah, thank vice you. grips, thank you. Um, for, you know, any any bodge kit, they're just so multi-purpose, aren't they? Yep. Necessary. Um, oh, and that's it? Oh, well, tuck tripe, um, repair tire patches. I mean, the, you, you can make a, a, a huge list of, of things, but... Um, the ones that we've talked about so far are the ones that I would key um, carry. Yeah. What about you, Brian? Anything else from you? Uh, all of the above, but um, uh, the main thing that I carry um, to fix most things is a Leatherman on my hip, and um, Cheryl carries the Swiss mm -hmm. Army knife, which, of course, has got the corkscrew on it. Oh, vital. <laughs> you can do a lot of repairs with this, um, a corkscrew, you? just can't never you? know, Sam. You never know. No, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a mental repair thing as much as anything Correct. else, isn't it? If you don't have it, then you're going to, you're going to wish you did. And I, I must tell you that we, we went to a repair shop in India oh. and Brian was assisting the local mechanic uh, do some repairs on the GS and um, left his leather man there. So there is a mechanic somewhere in remote India and the most expensive tool in his workshop is Brian's Leatherman. <laughs> By the time he worked out, we'd lost it. We'd uh, He'd left it there. We'd travelled about 100 kilometres and there is absolutely no way I was going back 100 kilometres and then do that 100 kilometres again. But Brian wanted to, right? Oh, look, he took it really well after a while. <laughs> And he got a new one. Yeah, so he doesn't hold grudges then, Shirley? Uh, not for long. 
or not longish. Well, okay. can I have an easier question, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, has that wrapped it up, Sam? Are you good with this? I would like to make one final comment, if I may. And that is we've been talking about self-sufficiency and there are so many hints and tips that allow us to be that. Um, but and, and you started off this, Jim, with there are times when we do need to ask for help and it opens up all sorts of doors and information and adds real quality to a journey. So long as we've gone into the situation and we've not gone into it with a lazy or a skiver or a, or a bludger um, attitude, then asking for help can just be the beginnings of the most wonderful experiences and relationships that um, you can possibly have. So um, I think we'll we'll go into plugs because... Brian is just dying to get on those bikes for a ride. Michelle is ducking down in the basement for the next tornado that comes through. I mean, things are getting pretty tense here. So, and it's half past 10, Jim, and I have to be up um, on a trip at five o'clock tomorrow morning. So. You mean? You're going on a trip tomorrow morning. Where are you going? Yeah. Um, only down to Cornwall, but um, yeah, it'll be a, a full day trip and, a, um, and a, it's going to be a long day. So it'll be good. Uh, Fingers crossed the sunshine is still out. Let's let's get into plugs. Michelle, let's start with you. I don't know if I have so much as a, a plug as just a general kind of uh, kicking off the new year idea for myself and anybody else who might be interested. I'm just uh, kind of reminding myself to go out and expand my moto experiences this year. So next week, I'm headed to the Barber Motorcycle Museum over in Alabama. Um, and I think Sam or maybe someone else here on the panel suggested late last year, just, you know, gave us kind of a friendly reminder to go out and support motorcycle events. So that's what I'm hoping to do a bit this year and, you know, putting a couple of events on my calendar to attend, stopping by and supporting museums, um, and trying some different, um, motorcycle events that I haven't attended before. I, I've been to some flat track races in different areas and to bike shows in different places in the country, but I'm trying to add a few of those to the calendar this year. So next nice. week, first up on the list is the Motorcycle Museum, and I'm excited to stop and see it. Great. How much time have you allowed um, for that, Michelle? You do realize you're going to nice. need at least three days. Nice. <laughs> no, I don't. I've allowed a day, and I, I know that's not adequate, but... Um, yeah, that's all I've got on the calendar for it. Well, so that's I'll, three I'll decent-sized bites of the apple, Michelle, um, <laughs> and it's enough to get you addicted to the place. Well, good. It's a great way to start uh, a new year, Michelle, and, and I, you're not even done this vacation. You're already planning your next one. I love that. That's great. You know, that's, <laughs> that's great. That's what it should be all about. Let's go to Grant next. Grant? Yeah. Um, what have I got? Well, as usual, always, there's the events. We've got all kinds of events scheduled, and we've got the dates for all but one of them. And then there's, we're working on one in the Midwest, which might happen, we're hoping. But I'll let you know more about that when we get it locked down. And here in Canada, we have the 2024 Motorcycle and Power Sports shows are finally back, which if you're interested in getting out to a motorcycle show, these are finally back in Canada. And there is an Explore section spelled E with a small X, P-L-R. I don't know where they come up with these spellings for these things. But anyway, it's all about adventure motorcycling, motorcycle travel in Canada. Lots to see, lots to do, and a good chance to get out. I won't be at any of them except the Vancouver one. 
about Eka Koch, who has been running our Ken West event for years, will be doing the Edmonton and Calgary show. He's running the Explore section for Moto Canada. So check that out at motocanada.com. Okay, very good. Sam, how about you? Well, first of all, I'd like to just say cheers to everybody because um, Birgit has just la- bought me in a very large um, pair of schnapps. So here, yeah, yeah, good health, everybody. Nice. Um, oh, because Birgit and I have uh, just been over in Germany for for Christmas and so on. So um, I did get some very tasty Christmas presents. So um, this is the first bottle of them. <laughs> Moving rapidly on, um, this um, plug is for Brits. Twenty fourth of March. Um, the Overlander and Adventure Day at the Ace Cafe in London. Um, it's a really good fun get-together of like-minded people. Um, it's a chance to make new friends who speak the same language and to get stuck into full English breakfasts, as well as to link up with the exhibitors and um, to chat overlanding adventure bikes and modifications and journeys made and so on. Really sadly, I cannot be there because the date clashes with the booking that I'd made before the date was announced but I will miss being there for sure. It's always such a good crossroad for adventure riders and overlanders. So I hope you guys get there and enjoy a breakfast for me. Okay. And Shirley, how about you? Sorry, Jim. It's a you know, situation normal here. Talk to Brian. He's my go-to plug man. <laughs> Brian, oh, what have you got? <laughs> oh, dang it. I'm just I'm trying to do up my bike boots. Um <laughs> <laughs> Just slow down, Brian. Just calm down and just give your plug. You're going to get to go. Uh, look, I'm a, I'm a bit conflicted. I've got, I've got two events uh, that I want to go to this, uh, in Feb, which is going to be the World Superbikes down at Phillip Island, 24th, 3th, 5th of Feb. So I'll either be down there or um, at uh, a CHUPS meeting. Now, CHUPS stands for uh, Confederation of Highly Underpaid Motorcycle Print Scribes. And um, we meet once a year, and um, so we'll probably be up in the hills doing that. But um, a good event I am going to, if anyone wants to catch up with us up there, is uh, the Speedway at Mildura on Australia Day, which is Friday 26th of January. Um, Going back to my old stamping ground, so watching um, these crazy guys, uh, which I used to do (laughs) on a sidecar, uh, get around Speedway track, which is a lot of fun, actually. So it, I'm going up there for. Oh, you got to tell them the reason why I'm just, going up yes, there, the aren't you? Yeah, I know you going, got to do this. It's not because of the. Well, yes, certainly the Speedway, but he's bringing home another toy. Not for the shed this time. It's too big for the shed. Uh-huh. He's bringing home a tractor. You you bought another BMW. Oh, Goosey tractor. Now, careful, Jim. This is, a, this, is, this is the vehicle I learnt to drive on when I was about four years of age, or maybe five. Uh, it's a grey Ferguson tractor, which runs on kerosene and petrol, which was in my father's shed when Dad passed. It, it was parked in the shed in 1962 or three. I've dragged it out and um, got it going uh, with a mate up there. So I've just got to go and pick it up. So it'll be patina. This old tractor's going to live in the garden and it's going to go. I'm going to make sure it works. Just, so, just everyone who lives on an acre really needs uh, a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> you'll turn it on and turn it off again. But look, it's okay. It's going to be a nice piece of garden art. 
<laughs> so that's I give you credit reason. for thinking that that's art. He's up, guys. Fine line. Isn't there some sort of bylaw in your neighborhood that says you can only have so many vehicles on one acre? <laughs> now, the other thing that's coming up, and I don't know whether Michelle's aware of this, I think, I think there's a Wimmer conference in Australia um, the first week in October, which I know is a fair way off, but for all the ladies out yes. there might be listening, um, it's not far from where we are. It's down in Bacchus Marsh, I think. So, um, yeah. Oh. Um, sh- I think you should. Wow, then you've got the inside scoop. Because they hadn't announced to us where it was going to be. Uh-oh. Yes. Oh, sorry. I was spoiled. No, that's, no, 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 no. Not at all. I mean, obviously, that that's great news. So, What, what did you say uh, it was? Yeah. October? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's way out in October. But I know it's a long way out. But, you know, uh, get yourselves organized, ladies. And uh, I think that'd be a great event. Don't you, Michelle? Absolutely. And thank you th- for the reminder on that, Brian. So it's the Women's International Motorcycle Association annual international rally and i think it's september 29th through october 5th um yeah and registration has not opened yet but you uh you can certainly go to wemaworld.com and find information on that so great reminder thank you you coming out yes yes absolutely it's on my calendar Good, good, good. Your bike's sitting so I'll be in the. Looking sh- you and Shirley up if yeah. you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> made up, right, waiting yeah, for you, and, and the, the bike's in the shed. The, the bike's there waiting for you. Fantastic. The, the bike. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> okay. Right, that's it for me. I'm off. <laughs> See you, Brian. Have a good ride. Have a good ride, Brian. Okay, yes, Brian. Thank, thank you very much, everyone. That wraps things up. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, everybody. Bye, everybody. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have published their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for traveling overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here, adventureriderradio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.